Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. Hi, y'all. This is Staying Fit ODAT. This is the podcast where we talk about healthy living and taking it one day at a time. And this voice, the voice that you're hearing now, it may feel a little unfamiliar. No, Migs has not altered his voice. Migs has pulled in his third string player, Katie Mack. Because today, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're not only listening to this podcast, we are celebrating because Migs has been doing this for one whole year. Doing this, I mean, recording people's stories talking about health and wellness for one whole year. And to celebrate, we're not going to let them host it. Ladies and gentlemen, as your host today, Katie Mack, the uh, creator of Fucking Sober, the first 90 days, that's my plug. Um, We're going to introduce to you your host so you can get to know him in a whole new way. But, 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 but before we get to do that, we need a little reminder. I know your fingers are itching. What are you going to do with them? Go to Apple Podcast, leave a review. I'm sure you've listened to one other episode at least. You should have listened to many more by now. Take a listen. Let us know what you're thinking. Make sure to find us in the Facebook group, Staying Fit ODAT. Also, just don't even be shy. It's a five star. Don't get confused. There are five stars. We're doing great work here. God's work. Thank you. So leave that review. Tell your friends. Listen again. Repost. Post on Instagram. Tell us, uh, you know, how much you like it on a TikTok with a TikTok dance. We'll take all forms. You can even just write a casual email. We'll read it out loud. I don't know. We're just say good things. We're happy to have you here. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, hey, Megs, you, uh, you, you back there? I am. I am. Wow. What Ladies an intro. And gentlemen, Megs Oh man, this is going to be an, I can already tell it. And, and these people already know that I'm an emotional person, but man, I can already, I was already getting choked up just hearing you say those things about like the podcast and whatnot. Wow. This is, I definitely, we definitely got the right person in for the job. Definitely. Well, this is, uh, this podcast is one of my favorite podcasts because it's my two favorite things. It's my two absolute favorite things. I'm an energizer bunny. So there's really there's their energy, you know, goes into two things. It's it's recovery in my community and literally physically running around like a chicken with their head cut off. People are always like, how you got so much energy? And I say, because I'm sober, you know, like, (laughs) what am I supposed to do with all this time now? So when I found out that this thing existed, uh, Migs asked me to come on uh, his podcast. When was that? Six months ago? Uh, I'm actually I was looking up the date right now to give. I know we're on the same wavelength. Uh, it was episode 14. It aired March 1st. So I want to say we probably recorded sometime in February. Oh my God. And it's like, that was like nine months ago. I could have had a baby in between then. So much has happened. Let's talk all about it. But I, it's just, I thought it was so cool that this thing existed. You know, it's like, it's, it's not even niche. I mean, so many of us in the community, when we try to take ownership back of our life, we we do so externally and then it changes us internally. Um, but, you know, I, I really want to know before we really get into your story, Migs, I actually want to start with the podcast and I want to know 
what was the moment? Where were you? What were you doing? What were you eating? What were you looking at, smelling when you were like, you know what? I need to make a podcast about staying fit and recovery at the same time. Like it's, it's brilliant, but like, where were you? You know, I'm trying to think like, you know, when was the magic? First off, I, I want to say too, and this, this part wasn't even a hundred percent planned. It's just, you know, it's, it's God's way it's divine intervention, but the, uh, I just looked at the date of the very first episode. I knew this was like the general week of like the one year, but episode one actually came out October 25th. You're fronting. I swear. You're not. Yeah. I, I, oh, and then, no. like I said, I knew this was the general week, but it's just you so guys. weird that that's the way that, that this worked out. Now I'm crying. Oh, in case anyone hasn't put it together, today is October 25th. Okay, can we just... <laughs> so, so it's been 52 weeks, but today is like, for calendar purposes, today is the exact one year. Uh, can you come up and get your one year podcasting chip, please? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, this man. is wild. Oh man. I wish I could have you do the editing for this one. Cause there'd be like perfect time for like sound drops, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not good at that kind of stuff. You are though, because if you listen to fucking silver 90, you know that there's all kinds of great effects and whatnot. And yeah, this is, and that's where, that's where that voice is coming from too. Katie. So awesome. Um, but, uh, to answer your question though, uh, I, shit, I don't even a hundred percent remember the question. No, that's okay. That's why I'm here. Um, it, I wanted to know exactly where you were when you thought of the podcast and then, you know, to really reflect, like what was day one, what was day one of podcasting? I mean, at this point we have a lot of people who do it, who are interested in doing it. I actually really think like take this question, you know, to, to pay it forward because, I think a lot of people have chewed on this idea of creating a platform for themselves to talk about recovery. So where were you when you thought about the idea? Where were you in your recovery? Um, and actually, yeah, quick, give me a, 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 a timeline of where you're at in your recovery. Uh, you know, if, if you're counting days or if you're sort of counting like washes of time, I know that you're a program person, um, but let, let us know that. And then talk about the idea, like where were you, where you were, where you're like, I mean, I I'm sure this is your thought. I'll do, I'll, I'll, this is probably how your, your brain sounds. It was probably like, yo, Mix, I have this great idea. And then you were like, hey, brain. And then it was like, hey, Mix, you should do a podcast. Like, I want to know where you were when that happened. And I know uh, that's how it sounds. Don't worry. I don't know. First off, I'm not sure if you're allowed to be this funny on here because you're going to want to <laughs> have our listeners firing me and then I'm not going to have a job here anymore doing this. Oh, um, no. Did we just become a co-host? Oh, uh, man. Me just, and just just so you know, the show comes with zero pay. <laughs> uh, it's just it's devoting a lot of time and hours and um, money out of the pocket for nothing coming back in. And I I'm literally crying because I so know that it's my whole um, life. But uh, seriously, though, so this the the Stang Fit ODAC group started late January of 2020 uh, as an inspiration for when I broke my ankle and couldn't train for the marathon I was training for, fell into a pity party and started Stang Fit ODAT on Facebook. It was just a handful of members in the original, um, just pretty much people that I knew that went to the gym or did something in recovery. So it was literally a handful of people. I think when I woke up, I created it at night. When I woke up the next morning, there was probably like five or six members um, that might even be highballing it. But even so, then, how did you decide to create it? Like a little bit like, is it, was it just God? Like, 
you know, so the exact, your fingers or? the exact reason for starting the Facebook group was I broke my ankle training for a marathon. I was in week mm-hmm. eight of a 16 week training plan. I was supposed to run the Los Angeles marathon in March of 2020 on January 12th of 2020. I, uh, you know, they say no texting and driving. Um, you should also do no texting and running. So I was, uh, checking my phone, uh, to make sure that my wife was still on board to meet where we were supposed to meet for her to pick me up. Cause I was running from a trail and I was running about halfway home. Uh, and it was supposed to be, uh, 18 mile, 19 mile run. I think it was what it was supposed oh. to be. So, uh, I was on my way and I was texting her. I stepped in a, like one of the largest potholes I've ever seen in my life. It was pretty much like a side of the road ditch is more so what it was. Uh, I immediately heard my ankle crack and snapple and snap crackle and pop, you know, all that nasty <laughs> stuff. And I, I tried to, you know, tell myself it wasn't what it was. I tried to fake it off and blah, blah, blah. I made it a few more miles. I actually, uh, you know, not, not to sound cocky, but, uh, you know, I might've even done more damage to it when I did this, but I kept going. This was mile eight and I completed 17 miles on that run. Uh, so I pretty much ran nine more miles on a broken ankle. That's some boy shit. You know, that's some boy stuff. Like boys are always like, no, man, I was like super injured. No, like it was hanging off, but I completed it. No, no, you're supposed to stop running. You're you know what, though, stop on that note, though, in all seriousness and listeners here, specifically runners will probably be able to vouch for this. If you've ever broken, fractured, sprained yeah. anything below your knee while you're on a run, uh, I knew that I had a, a, a short window of adrenaline. And I knew that with our son only being shit, he might, uh, I can't even really do the time for him. He was very, very young. He might've been eight months or a year and a half. I was going to say less than a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He was born in May of 2018. So no, he would have actually been a year and a half. So he was a year and a half old, but it's winter time. So I knew my wife wouldn't want to drive further. So I knew I had a short window of adrenaline, try and make it as close to the pickup spot as I can. So I immediately kept running and I was like, all right, like just try and run as much as you can. And I made it as far as I could. As soon as I stopped to try and look at it, that's pretty much when I was done. I can barely walk. But then also, too, because when you walk, you actually put more pressure on it for for longer periods of time. I actually found that like trying to jog, there was like almost like a perfect pace, so to speak where like jogging was actually the least painful of the options and sitting on the side of the road waiting for her was pretty much not an option because at that point I still wasn't ready to admit that I wasn't running the marathon. So Uh, I was, mm -hmm. I was trying to pretty much fake it till I make it type thing. Anyway, I make it to the church. Weirdly enough is ended where about as far as I made it. So I take off my shoe. My ankle was immediately ballooned up and I went home and I still tried to, I still tried to fake it. This was a Sunday. I'm a server at a restaurant, so I still went to work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, pulled that off, come back to work the next Thursday, and it's still hurting. We're now like 10 days, 11 days later. I went to work Friday, and I made a joke to my boss. I said, uh, Mallory, which is my wife, wants me to go to uh, get x-rays and see if it's broken uh, before I book my plane ticket for L.A. for the marathon, because at this point, I was still on this day, 12 days later. I was still going to run that marathon. So she tells me to go get these x-rays. I tell my boss that I'm going to do this after work and he's laughing and he's like, 
there's no way it's broken. It's probably just sprained. Like there's no way you've been working and serving and walking and doing all this stuff for the last 12 days. If it's broken, I said, that's my point. Exactly. I wouldn't be able to walk and put that much pressure on it. I go, I get the x-rays and they immediately tell me it was fractured. And so yeah, they, and, and actually on a side note too, people in recovery can also probably relate to this. So the doctor, I went into an urgent care about 10 minutes before they were closing because I work in the restaurant industry. And so the doctor immediately thought that I was just seeking out pain pills. Mm. He's like, Oh, you did this 12 days ago and you're walking around on it. You're working, you're doing this and that. And now you want to come get it looked at. He goes, I'm not giving you any pain pills. I said, cool. Because if you tried to, I would have denied them. I'm in recovery, but um, thank you. Now, can we please get back to uh, you politely doing your job, please? Now, can we go get those x-rays? Nice, uh, brother. And and so, so hard to deal immediately with. his demeanor changed. And because he pissed me off the way he said it. So I was an asshole right back to him. After that, he kind of chilled back a little bit. I chilled back. We kind of each, I guess, said sorry without ever saying sorry. So I go get the x-ray. I come back. Then he starts kind of almost laughing, laughing, laughing it off, not laughing at me. But he's like, yeah, it's definitely fractured here and here and everything he said. And I was like, all right, cool. So uh, I go home and I pretty much I'm in like a pity party that night. Uh, I'm literally crying myself to sleep. I'm depressed. I mean, I'm and Migs, this like, was your first marathon. It would have been. It would have been. Yeah. OK. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm supposed to go out there with like one of my best friends. I call him like a little brother. We were supposed to fly out to LA together, mm. run this marathon. And it was, it was all that it was going to be LA. My first time ever in California, there was a small chance. My wife was going to be able to come with me and our son. And it was just like, it, it meant so much to be able to go do it. Uh, keep, this is also when the, I guess, Corona starting to hit other countries. We weren't oh, doing anything right. here yet. This was <gasps> early January. So we're two months away from the shutdown, but there's like other places are starting to tell people they should do things and this and that. So, you know, for some people who keep up with the news and at the time they were being called conspiracy theorists and and worry warts and whatnot. But people were fearing that eventually things were going to get bad over here and this and that. And so, you know, I was really depressed. So anyway, the uh, the next day I go to work and. I'm really depressed at work. I'm seeing people drink at work and you know, it's just, it's bothering me. So I never take my wallet to work cause I live like five, six blocks away from where I work. So I go to, there's a six pack shop right across the street from my job. So I go to the six pack shop and I throw uh, I throw some beer on the counter. And uh, if I'm being honest, I was kind con- I don't know if I would have did it, but I was contemplating throwing it away at that point because I was like, shit, I can't run. I had a resentment. I had a, I, I almost got into a physical altercation in an AA mm. meeting about two weeks before this. So I felt that I couldn't even go to a meeting. Um, it was just, I was very depressed. So I threw the beer on the counter. How long it, in your recovery? Uh, this at that was, point, how long had you been sober? I've been sober for my sober date is May of 2018. So this was about a year, like a year and seven, a, a year and yeah, a year and seven months into my recovery. So I, uh, yeah. I so it- in some lenses, people would have been like, oh, he, he got it. Like, oh yeah. Like he's a year and seven months in, like he doesn't think about relapsing and you're at this point potentially about to relapse for sure. So I throw the beer on, uh, it's a new girl working that never seen me wow. there before for my drinking days. So she, I ease me mm-hmm. and I don't have my wallet on me because I was prepared to just pay cash from working as a server. So I get denied the beer. I go home. I still, I'm a pretty strong person. I like to think, 
I like to think that if I get sold that beer that night, I get home, I, maybe I sit in my car, maybe I change my mind, maybe I don't drink the beer, maybe I dump it down, maybe I give it to a neighbor, maybe I take it back to a coworker the next day. I don't know. I like to think looking back that something would have happened as well and God would have stepped in in another way. But he was able to just get to, he was able to cut me off right in the beginning pretty much. Uh, and I never even got sold the beer. So I went home, went back chills. to the pity party thing. At this point, I know because I have a baby face, I know that there's no point in even stopping at another bar because there's also only one bar that I know because it's been so long since I've drank at this point, new bartenders, new servers everywhere. I know there's one bar I can go without getting carded and they know that I'm in recovery, so I'm not going to go there. So I changed my mind. I just yeah, go if, home. If y'all have never looked up Migs's profile, if y'all like don't aren't friends with him on Facebook, go look because he does have a baby face. This man does not age. He this. looks, I mean, 16, he's 16, he's 16, you know, so he's not lying. It's not like, oh, I'm cute and young and like people. No, he like really does look like a, a young man. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, I go home and, you know, my wife can tell I'm like, I'm, I'm distraught. I'm about, I'm about as depressed as, as you can be without losing a family member. I mean, I felt like I did because I lost running. The doctor told me I'm obviously not running yeah. a marathon. And I was just, I was super depressed. You know, I had to text my, my, we'll call my little brother. I had to tell him I'm not going to be able to run this race. And, you know, I just felt like I let people down. I feel like I shit on my training. I feel like, and it just, I was, I was upset. So, you know, in that time frame, going on to the, the running groups and all the great running groups that are out there on Facebook, you know, I posted pictures of my ankle and this and that, and everybody's answer is all the same. Uh, well, you know, it's winter time in Pennsylvania. So just go drink, go drink the new beers or enjoy this time to go do whatever and have some fun. And, you know, that's great for an average person. I'm definitely not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm not an average person. I'm not a air quotes here, normie, as we like to call them. That's not me. I can't just go have a couple beers, enjoy the, the new stuff out for the winter and call it a day because I'm going to just drink till I black out and then I'll never look back. So I wanted to create a support group for other people like us. So I create this group and like I said, it's just a handful of people that have been in since day one and they joined the group and fast forward to, to answer the rest of the question. A few months later, I, in, in this time, I was already kind of thinking like maybe a couple months into it when people started coming on the Facebook group and posting, you know, I've been in recovery for this long and I'm running this race or I've done this many marathons or half marathons or you know, whatever, what, or triathlon or whatever the case may be. Cause in the beginning it was just a lot of runners. So when people are posting this stuff, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. Like, it'd be awesome to be able to share these people's stories with other people somehow. And I couldn't think of how to do it because at the time I was just focused on keeping this group anonymous, private. I'm not even mm -hmm. really talking about what people are saying in the group. And I was trying to find like that, uh, that, that fair, safe middle ground and what people were comfortable with. So in June of 2020, I got asked to be on a podcast called Quit Blank and Started Running by a friend of mine, Antonio DeHeinrich, and she had me on her podcast. We shared my story, and then it officially clicked. That was June of 2020, and at that point, I was like, I want to do a podcast. I think I even said it on the air, like I've been thinking about doing a podcast, this kind of like lit the fire. I want to do it. So for the rest of the summer, just like I tend to do, I kind of just like kicked the ball around. I didn't know how I was going to do it, how to start, what to do. And then I realized one day I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, 
I just got to do it. I got to stop because the longer I push it off, the longer I come up with excuses. I'm just not going to do anything. So I went on Amazon, bought a $20 microphone, the cheapest microphone that I could find on there that looked like it was professional. And I bought that. I got a good friend of mine who I talked to and I've known for a few years and he spent 15 years in prison for an armed robbery charge, came out and he's now a business owner. He's like an advocate in the community. He tries to help people and he's just a great person. So I was like, yo, how would you like to be the first guest on the podcast? He jumped at the idea. And then once I had his episode recorded, I was like, I couldn't have just wasted Evan's time. So I got to do this. So I went back in retrospect and then I recorded like my little 35 minute episode just titled my story. And then October 25th, I dropped that one the next week, like the first Sunday in November, whatever it was, I dropped Evans and you know, there's been some weeks that I missed because of scheduling purposes and whatnot. But, uh, when I did that too, I also hit a time frame too earlier this summer or maybe even August or so where like I released shit, probably like 10 episodes in one month at one point just to catch up to par. So that way, when I was looking at the calendar and I figured out how I had to do it, I got back on schedule. Now that I've been back on schedule for like three months or however long it's been, it's we're right back to every Sunday an episode comes out, including just this last week. You know, we're recording this on October 25th. Like we said, actually, just yesterday, uh, the 53rd episode came out. And hey. it's, uh, Gab- it's called uh, Gabby's Story, uh, a really, really crazy story. Um, but it's yeah. So we're 53 episodes in. And that's been my inspiration is just being able to share these people's amazing stories of recovery and just, you know, being the great people that they are and being the talker that I am and just loving to hear a good story. It just it worked. So that's the beginning of the podcasting and staying fit Odette Facebook group. So let me jump to where we are now. You just highlighted we have 53 episodes. So you guys, there are 52 weeks in a year. So <laughs> we're ahead of schedule. We got one extra one. Um, tell me how many Facebook members we have now for staying fit Odette. So right now we have. Check the stats, check the stats. And in February, or I mean, uh, in June of 2020, when I was hosted, when or when I was uh, invited to speak on that podcast, we only had 60 members. I remember actually saying it on the air of that episode that the group was 60 members deep. Right now, we have, as of this morning, 777, 777 members. 777. Seven, seven. Oh, I love this. But the really cool thing is we have members in 23 different countries in this group. That is the really, that is so cool. You know, as for me, for me personally, I'm on, I'm part of the group. Y'all don't worry. (laughs) Um, my, one of my, it's like the, it's one of the only Facebook groups that I actually have my alerts on. Um, cause you got to keep that mental health with them alerts because I love when someone posts something, it's never negative. It's always positive or it's someone genuinely reaching out for help. Right. And then I, I, you know, want to show up for them. So it, that's that's for me one of my favorite parts about the group that I keep the alerts on and either someone's sharing a success um, or reaching out for genuine sincere help. So I, I you know again for me if something pops up for that I want to engage. You know I just I love, love that group. That's yeah. very true. And so these are actually like I said we have twenty three countries. These are the uh, the countries um, United States obviously. Uh, United States. And these are actually the order, the way I'm saying them are the order of like population in which like percentage of the group. So United States, United Kingdom, 
Canada, Australia, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Thailand, Philippines, Taiwan, Puerto Rico, India, Brazil, Vietnam, Russia, Kuwait, Denmark, Greece, New Zealand, Switzerland, Netherlands, Norway, and the Czech Republic. Wow, that's so cool. That and is it's so cool. And like you said, too, with people posting, you know, whether it's a triumph or people just needing genuine help, the really cool thing about having members in 23 different countries is no matter what time, no matter where in the world you are That's and so you weird. post for you need help between 23 different countries, all the time zones and everything, somebody <laughs> is wide awake, whether they're, <laughs> whether they're at work and they're allowed to be on their phone or, you know, they're at home hanging out or whatever the case, or maybe they're just like, me and they're not normal and they're awake at like three o'clock in the morning just looking just at social media um you know whatever the case may be these there is somebody in the world in this group that is wide awake and i don't think i've ever seen anybody post anything like burning desire related and yeah. not have people commenting or responding to them within like 10 minutes tops that's so real. Most I mean, of the time, even faster. I'm probably I'm probably way highballing it at 10 minutes. I mean, usually it's within like two minutes. Someone sees something. Yeah, I I, I know for a fact that you don't even sleep. So that, that have you guys ever met anybody who doesn't need sleep? If you haven't introduced yourself to Migs, because this homeboy does not sleep. I don't know how he does it. He doesn't ever seem tired. He's got a kid. He's got a wife. He's got a job. He's got this whole poker thing. He's in recovery. He doesn't sleep. Okay. And then, you know, he's always responding on this group. And so, and that is for me too. As soon as it comes up for me, I don't care what time of day I'll like roll over and like something. Um, that's, I mean, it's one of my favorite spaces on the internet. Um, so we have this incredibly successful Facebook group. They go in, you have an incredible podcast and we want to give the people what they really want. Migs, we want to, we want to do what you done to them. I want to <laughs> bet. <laughs> so every episode Migs asks, uh, you know, his guests to talk about their story with recovery and sort of go back to their childhood. Um, and I would love for you to do that for us to really sort of dig deep. And as a challenge, you know, I think, so, you know, yeah, I'm a 12 step person, you're a 12 step person. And and we get the opportunity, you know, God willing to share our story with as, as many people as we can. So sometimes we sort of get in like a habit. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to hit this. This part, this gives people chills. Like you're a little like you become a little bit of a storyteller. I'm curious if I can interrupt sometimes and ask a little bit about some questions. And we're going to see if we can come up with something that maybe you haven't shared before. Uh, uh, I. Ma'am, I'm just a guest on your show. <laughs> so uh, whatever you need to do, I'm just here. Uh, I'm just here to answer questions. Uh, my know, life just, was just evil then. I just had an evil laugh. It just came I'm, out. I'm just, I'm just very honored for uh, to be asked to be on this show today. And uh, yeah, I would love to share my story. So, uh, I mean, it. Tell all, us from the beginning, the very beginning. You once were a baby. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, so I once was a baby, born uh, August seventeenth, uh, nineteen eighty-seven. Shit, I actually had to think about that. I feel like I'm getting old. Um, you are. Yeah, I was born in uh, the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, Allentown specifically. Oh. Uh, for teenage parents, my mom had me three days before she turned 17. My dad wow. had just turned 19 two months prior. Babies uh, making babies. Yeah, absolutely. So they, uh, you know, they, they probably weren't really ready to have kids, although they did the best that they could do. My dad was an addict and an alcoholic himself. He was also physically abusive to my mother. They split up when I was two. 
And did you they, have any other siblings at that time? At that time, no. I was the only child. When they split, they each, within two years, they were each remarried. And well, they both immediately got into relationships. But within two mm. years, I had siblings. I had a brother on each right. side. Right. And, and then to be followed by a sister on each side. So my mom and my dad each remarrying, each had another boy and another girl. So I'm technically the oldest of five. Uh, I share a mom with two and a dad with the other two. Uh, the other two live up here Two live down in Florida. My, uh, like I said, my dad was an alcoholic and an addict. He was physically abusive. My mom's new husband also was physically abusive to her mm -hmm. at the time. The, the father of my brother and sister, he was, he was really no better. Um, just without the alcohol and drug problem is the only difference. And so my mom eventually got out of that relationship and not for a while. So like my mom ended up raising us as single parents. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents uh, because my mom would have to work two jobs at some point. And so I got really close to my grandmother and my grandfather. My grandfather is the reason I'm a Steelers fan. And so on my dad's side in that time frame, he, my dad, you know, he tried to do the best that he can do, especially for being an addict and, and, you know, suffering from the disease, knowing what I know about it now, uh, you know, I'll, I will never, ever, ever, ever make an excuse for the physically abusive aspect of him because me at my drunkest at my shittiest and a lot of people I know you know the disease doesn't make us raise our hand to people it doesn't make us put our hands on on women and whatnot so part of me will I don't want to say we'll never forget but uh, that that's one part of his story that I'll never like necessarily forgive because I'm not going to let that be blamed on drugs and alcohol uh However, you know, maybe, maybe different people work in different ways. So I'm also going to try not to judge people that have been through that. But anyway, so that abuse actually, unfortunately for him continued with my stepmom as well. So, you know, I was pretty much seeing it from both sides. When I was home with my mom, I would see her dealing uh -huh. with it. When I was at my dad's house, I would see him doing it to my stepmom. And so it, it bothered me a lot. My dad would try and be very active with me. He would take me to bowling every Friday and Sunday, but he would always, at the time I didn't comprehend the alcoholism because his attitude and his demeanor would always change a few hours after we were there. Now mm. looking back, I know it's because that's when he was getting drunk at that point. Right. Uh, I remember a couple of times where he almost got into fistfights and I'm, I'm to this day, I'm pretty sure the only reason he didn't get into a couple of those fights, one that I can think of specifically, this dude was huge. And I'm pretty sure, honestly, the only reason he didn't, uh, fight my dad that night is because I was right next to my dad trying to de-escalate the situation. And this dude just had himself really well together. And I think he just figured like, I'm not going to fight this drunk, obnoxious dude right in front of his little child. Like, you know, he just, you know, thinking as an adult and a father, how old myself, do you think you were? Uh, not even 10. Yeah. 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 So like con like a conscious person, like, you know, like, you know, but, but you know, not, not at all an adult. Yeah. No, and sure. like understanding what's going on, but maybe not the full scope of everything. Exactly. So actually that I, it might've even been that same night. My dad is, he loads us up in the car and it's uh, me. I'm the only kid. It's me and his other adult friends. And I remember him getting into an argument with another guy that was there. Uh, this guy and his wife were always really, really nice to me when we were there. Uh, again, one of those things looking back, I think that they just knew 
that my dad was very drunk. And I think that they were trying to just like try and give me somewhat of a safe place, someone to talk to because they knew how my dad would turn into. So I remember him getting my dad getting into an argument with this guy, uh, but I don't really remember why or what it was about until looking back. So we get in the car. I'm actually sitting in the back, not even on the back seat. I'm on the floor of the car, but I'm sitting on a case of beer. <sighs> and there's four adults in the car. My dad, someone in the passenger seat, two other people, maybe five people in the car, three other people across the back seat. And I'm literally the beer boy. So anybody yep. that needs a beer in the car, I'm handing them beers while my dad is driving, including my dad. Yeah. And he gets into a car accident. He hits <sighs> another car, headlight to headlight. Like it's like each of their light, like they probably both just merged into the middle of the road a little bit too much. And I remember my dad getting out of the car, arguing with this guy. They were uh, a few curse words exchanged and then eventually a few laughs and them each getting back in their car and driving away. So the only thing as a child, the only thing I can put together there now looking back is that either a, this other person was also drunk and they both realized that neither one of them wanted the cops coming or this person was doing something illegal, whether it was insurance or, or drugs or whatever the case may be. They obviously, they were, they, neither one of them wanted the cops responding and that's why they ended up laughing and both getting back in their cars. So in that time, the guy that my dad was arguing with at the bowling alley then cut my dad off at a point where he couldn't pull away from where he was and pretty much pinned him between the curb and a tree. And then at that point was arguing with my dad saying, let Miguel out of the car. I'm taking him home. And my dad didn't want to let him do that. And it got to the point where he pretty much told him, if you don't let him out of the car, I'm going to call the police. And so that was the reason that my dad let me out of the car. He didn't want to go to jail that night. He didn't want to get a DUI or whatever else he would have gotten in trouble for. So he lets me out of the car. This guy takes me home. Uh, fast forward a little bit. I now understand and I comprehend what drinking is. I don't understand and comprehend necessarily the fact of being drunk, but I know that whenever my dad drinks these cold cans and bottles or these liquor bottles, I, I'm now comprehending that his behavior changes after he has a few. So I sub, I kind of peacefully ask him a few times, like, do you have to do that? Do you have to drink? Heart. Uh. Um, so then fast forwarding a little bit more. I remember at one point my mom and my dad are going through. I don't really want to say a custody battle because it's not like my mom was ever going to lose me. But I think that it was like some type of like custody agreement that they were trying to. I. I don't really know exactly what it was. I don't know if my dad was trying to confirm his weekends or whatever the case may be. Cause at this time I just went to my dad's like every other weekend, but my mom would also never hold me away from my dad. So if I knew that there was something going on or, you know, every once in a while, my dad would try and have like fun plans or I would meet a friend and do something like that. And if my dad was available to go, you know, I would go there that weekend as well. Cause like I said, my dad did try his best to be a good dad. He wanted to be in my life. He didn't want to keep me away, but unfortunately he couldn't be sober as well. Did so, you feel loved by these actions? Like, did you feel like your dad loved you? There was no doubt in my mind ever that my dad mm. loved me. Never, mm. never doubted the fact that my dad loved me. I just, looking back, I just know that he was very, very troubled by this disease. Yeah. So he, uh, I remember filling out this paperwork and the counselor giving me this paper at school. And I guess custody, I don't know if they reached out at school or it was the lawyer. I don't, I don't remember exactly who gave it to me, but I remember being in like the counselor's office or something at school. 
and there was a, a stranger in there and they gave me this paper um, that said, you know, I want you to go home and I want you to fill out this paper and then bring it back. And on the paper, it just said like things, things I want from mom's side, things I want from dad's side. And I remember the only thing I wrote on the paper for either. I wrote nothing that I wanted on my mom's side. I wrote nothing that I wanted from my dad's side. All I wrote was dad, please don't drink. That's oh all I wrote on the God. paper. That's all I wrote on the paper. Now, my dad also had a drug problem, but I didn't comprehend the drug problem because he never did drugs. He never did drugs in front of me. Um, he did them in the house while I was there, but he didn't do them in front of me necessarily. Do you know what what types of drugs? I, I, he, I he think he did yeah. everything. To my knowledge, he did everything non-intervenous, including like actual crack, uh, weed, pills. I mean, to my knowledge, he he did everything except shoot up. I'm not sure if he ever did that or not. Uh, so it's this whole agreement happens. And then at that point, my dad, then for a while, I think that he's not drinking in front of me, you know, again, knowing what I know about being an adult now and being an alcoholic, looking back, I realized he was just hiding it. He was putting it in different kinds of containers, different kinds of bottles. Um, he did cut down a little bit. He was trying to do his best. I definitely give him credit there. So he was struggling, obviously. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, I actually remember one incident in which he let the, uh, the neighbor or not the neighbor, uh, his, uh, the plug, you know, we all know that term. So the, uh, the plug shows up, the dope man <laughs> shows up and I guess my dad owed him money. And I remember him coming in and yelling at my little brother. Like if he did something wrong, even though he did nothing wrong and he pretended like he was punishing him and he was taking the Nintendo away, uh, because he was being grounded from it, but really it was getting given to the dope man to cover off money that he owed him. Uh, so that way pretty much the, everybody in the house could be left safely. So, you know, that happens. And then I was getting, I was a little bit older at that point. I'm pretty sure. Cause my older cousin was also there. And so that was the first time I realized what was actually happening. Wow. So, so again, now fast forwarding a little bit more. Uh, my dad moves to Florida because he has legal troubles and he wants can to I, start. Can I ask a question? Did you know What's anybody up? else going through this? Like, could you say to your friends? I mean, like, could you be like, yo, my dad was doing this and they would be like, oh, my dad did that too. Or like, did you feel like you just didn't talk about this at all? No, I didn't talk about kid. it. I didn't talk yeah. about it to anybody. Um, some of my cousins who I was, who I were really, really, really close with, uh, they knew what was going on. And, uh, and we'll get to this point at some point, but they had similar situations going on in their own household. Mm. And so neither one of us really talked about it. We kind of just kept our feelings inside. Cause I think neither one of us wanted to be embarrassed. Yeah. But I yeah. was really, really close with a couple of my cousins. And so my dad moves down to Florida and when he goes down there, he says this to get sober. I didn't believe him because a year later, he's supposed to come up for my high school graduation and he misses my graduation. He shows up a day late, says he missed the flight or whatever happened. You know, I blamed it on. Yeah, you're probably just drunk, slept through it, did this, did that. Because at this point, um, I had a lot of resentment towards my dad. He moved down to Florida because I still loved him. So moving down to Florida, now I can't see him. He took my brother and sister away from me. So it was filled with nothing but resentment. So I pretty much called him an alcoholic at every and, an, and a drug addict at every shot that I could get. You know, anything he did wrong 
you know, if it was, uh, if he told me it was going to be sunny tomorrow and it rained, well, that's because you're an alcoholic. And mm. like any chance I got, I would so throw angry. so many stones yeah. at him. There's so much resentment at that point. So he comes back and, or uh, he didn't come back, but he eventually makes it up here. Uh, he's a day late for graduation. I really didn't want to spend that much time with him, but I did spend time with my brother and sister. I had a really close bond to my stepmom at the point. Uh, now, fast forwarding a few more years, uh, just actually like maybe like two more years, my uncle, the the father and, and stepfather of the cousins that I were really close with that I mentioned a couple minutes ago, uh, now finding out that he also has a drug problem. Um, specifically cocaine. And, you know, I remember this time in which they said that, uh, Dio Jason is, he's working a different job and that's why you're not seeing him. Uh, he's always leaving before you wake up and he's already in bed or however they were, but we pretty much, we all bought it. Everybody except my oldest cousin was the only one that knew the truth. And we all thought that he was actually working, uh, a little bit into his time frame, I realized he was actually in rehab. Uh, mm. My two younger cousins still never knew the truth at that point. So he comes home. Why do you think gets- that is? Why don't you think your family felt comfortable? I mean, again, it's too simple to say, but like, you know, there are some people that can just talk about so it. Like, why do you when, feel like in your family? When we're going back say- to this point, this isn't, this isn't now post-graduation. I'm going back a little bit again. I'm probably like, maybe yeah. like 12 years old. So my they feel younger like they're cousins talk are to the kids about me. it. So they didn't want to tell, you know, my nine and 10 year old cousin that your, your dad is a drug addict and he's in rehab because they don't want them getting made fun of at school. You never know who they're going to tell. I think there might've even been, you know, a little bit of shame amongst themselves because, you know, oh, sure. I don't want my kids going and saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. And then they find out that, you know, I'm married to an addict or whatever the case may be. So that uh, feels very real. Yeah. I don't want people talking to other. I don't want these kids talking to other adults about it. You know, But I think more so more than anything, I think they just didn't want to uh, hurt the kids. And, you know, who of wants course, to find out their dad is a drug addict? Because, again, when we think of drug addict, you know, looking back at the stereotype, we think homeless under the bridge, no right. money, this and that. And that wasn't the case. He was a hard worker, uh, loved his family, did everything he could to provide for his family. He just unfortunately had a very bad problem with coke. So and that is just that's such a space that I think like cannot be over highlighted. Right. This idea that like, what does it mean to be a functioning drug addict or a functioning alcoholic? Um, it's not that, you know, you can have terrible moments. Right. And you can have sort of bad behavior, but you can still also be a really great person. You can still show up to work on time. You can still be a good husband and you might just be like miserable or you might just be you know, totally controlled by the substance. So just taking a moment to be like you just highlighted something really big. You know, this person really needed to go to rehab, needed help. And you can't help it in the same breath, say he was a wonderful dude or like, you know, he was doing his job and he was providing for his family. And I just, I can't help, but always want to, I can't help, but always want to over highlight that, that these, these two things can exist at the same time. Yeah. So a little bit after this time of my uncle getting out of rehab, my other uncle on my other side, uh, he overdosed from he was also addicted to crack he overdosed and he passed away i was in eighth eighth or ninth grade when he passed away a few years later my uncle who i just mentioned that was in rehab he got some clean time together he ended up relapsing it got to the point where uh he was now him and my aunt were going to get a divorce they were going to sell the house they were going to split their ways they were going to do whatever and um you know he said 
I'm not going to sell this house because he, they've done a lot of add-ons in the house and, you know, funny little story, quick looking back at that. The very first time I had ever gotten actually drunk in my life, I was hungover. The next morning, my aunt knew I was hungover, comes in, making all kinds of fucking noise uh, <laughs> to wake me up on a Saturday morning. And uh, she goes, I was like, man, this shit is, I have a major headache. She goes, yeah, because you're fucking hungover. I heard you guys come in late last night. And I said, no, 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 blah, blah, blah. She said, look, I'm not going to tell your mom. You, or she said, you have two choices. You can, I can either tell your mom or you can get outside right now and you can help us. And at the time they were like digging up everything to put a pool in their backyard and to put a deck. And this is the middle of the summer. So my choices are pretty much do physical labor in the summertime in my first ever hangover. I'm 16. So it's my first ever hangover. And um, either that or tell my mom. And, you know, especially with my dad being an alcoholic, my mom would not have responded well to that. So uh, I chose the physical labor. And that should so, have been the cure. That should have been the cure. You should have been like, that should have been it for you. Oh, it you was terrible. Like- I remember throwing up. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, it was absolutely terrible. It was absolutely terrible. So uh, <sighs> I then went to uh, back to my uncle. So he said, you know, we did all these all this stuff to the house. I'm never selling this house. I'll die in this house before I sell this house. Um, and he did exactly that. Oh, he, uh, I knew that was coming. When they were selling the house. They found him in the basement. He, he took his own life. Uh, shit. Uh, That's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I loved him a lot. You know, he was, especially with my dad being back and forth and whatnot. And my dad was already down in Florida for like two years at this point. My uncle Jason was like damn near father figure to me. We would yeah. watch sports. I was over at my cousin's house like every weekend, every other weekend. And I would spend the weekend there from like Friday when I got out of school till Sunday as late as my mom would let me stay there till I had to come home and get ready for school for the week. And I would just spend the entire weekend with them. And, you know, I, I love my uncle to death. And uh, so he took his own life. And at that point, you know, the three. Mix, how old are you when that happened? I was 18. Yeah. No. Somewhere between 18 and 20. I wasn't okay. 21 yet. So at that point, I mean, I already knew I never wanted to. Because at that point, too, I could also count on one hand how many times I had drank in my life. Let alone mm. been. I think at that point, the only time I'd ever really been drunk was that time I just referenced. So I always told myself, like, you know, between the three most influential men in my life, yeah. my dad. And my two uncles that passed away, they were all alcoholics and addicts. And I always said, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do drugs. Like, I'm going to be better than this. You know, uh, I then at 17 years old, I got a girl pregnant. And we split up. We were like on and off the entire time. And we split up. I got myself at this time. I actually wasn't drinking at all, but I was I started smoking weed when I was 18. Shortly after they were born, I started, I was like really stressed out and I started smoking weed pretty, I guess you could say harmless. I wasn't getting in any trouble, uh, but I was also selling weed. And so I get myself in some legal trouble. Uh, and did weed feel like just not as harmful or just maybe more accessible? Or I think was there I think, something about it that just felt. Yeah, different? I think it was it, it to, in my mind with the whole, I'm not going to drink and do drugs. Weed was always justified by 
I couldn't remember my dad ever have, cause at this point I knew all of the drugs my dad had done. Right. I couldn't remember him ever being a bad person if he was smoking weed. And if he was, I never mm. knew about it. Um, my uncle who passed, who took his own life because of Coke, I would always hear, like, I would remember times where like, I guess he would, he would smoke weed. And when he would go back to doing Coke, I, re I remember arguments like overhearing arguments that I shouldn't hear. Like, why can't you just smoke weed? Right. And, oh my God. I so, so identify with that. There yeah. was, there was a lot of that. And like, I don't know, weed was never identified as like a hard drug. You know, th those, all those studies that you hear when you're a kid, like no one ever overdosed on weed. You got to smoke right. this much in this amount of time <laughs> to overdose. And, you know, at the worst case scenario, it's just going to make you drive slow and eat all the food out of your cabinets. That's like the worst that's going to happen to you when you're stoned. So I never associated it as a bad thing. Uh, and also remind me what city we're in. Are we in Allentown uh, at this point in your I'm story? I'm technically living in Bethlehem. But I'm spending oh, a lot okay. of time in Allentown because that's where my cousins are. I'm just yeah. Some some of me is like sometimes also just like the city you live, like culturally, like the city yeah. you live in. It's or, very, you know, very, very uh, they're very urban towns. Both of them, Allentown and Bethlehem, very urban, about an hour away from Philly. Um, Allentown is actually by a lot of people referred to as almost like mini New York. And yeah. it's yeah. So they're very, very urban. I mean. At this point, I'm old enough to see, I mean, there's there's drug addicts and homeless people on like every corner. You know, we see prostitution. It's really easy when I'm selling weed. It's really easy to go out there and sell weed to, to friends and peers and <clears throat> even strangers at that point, whatever the case may be. So it was it was yeah, it was everything you think of when you think of like an urban city. So so at this at this point, you're taking care of a, a new baby and you're kind of depressed and you're feeling like, you know, you're going to smoke some weed and sell some weed and you get in some trouble. And then what happens? Yeah. So, well, they're actually twins. Oh, yeah. So, sorry. Sorry. No, That's all right. good. So I uh, I'm now I'm, I'm still selling weed. I actually at one point. So I stopped selling weed and because I, I got a decent job. I was working for T-Mobile at the time and I was 19 years old. Oh, my making, God. You'd be yeah. so good at that. <laughs> like, and I, I was I so was good too. at that to, to toot my own that horn so for funny. a second. I was fucking so good at that job that's why i quit selling weed because at this i told my i was going to turn that into a career straight yeah. out of straight out of training i was winning all kinds of like awards at work um they have multiple call centers i'm talking i mean we had over 700 employees just in our call center with all the call centers you're talking thousands and thousands of employees and i was ranked like they do all these metric systems i was ranked the top 10 employee in the entire country I'm that 19, is a while. I believe it's 100 percent. I'm 19 years old. So not only that, but at 19 years old, I'm also making um, I chose to work like the. Uh, the. I guess it was like a swing shift. It was damn near third shift, but it was like the it was like the earliest to the overnight that you could do where you would get the extra shift differential because I was all about making that money. Right. So I was right. getting I was getting an extra dollar fifty an hour on top of my pay. So this is. Now, keep in mind in reference to the time frame, this is 2007, 2008, and I'm making like $17, $18 an hour, full medical benefits, uh, the, the newest cell phone on the market at any time for like 70% off. Um, I'm paying like $30, $40 a month for unlimited everything, uh, plus like another $20 a month for the, the mother of my kids because we're separated this time. 
but like $20. So I'm pretty much paying $60 a month for me and my kid's mom to have unlimited everything on our phones. You know, this is back when the sidekicks were brand new. I had the newest sidekicks, oh the newest my God, Blackberries. I had, so, I mean, I'm making like damn near $18 an hour full medical benefits and I'm only paying 60 bucks a month for, uh, for unlimited everything. In and you had never had this kind of money, money before. No, yeah. I was making, I was making great money. Yeah. So, um, and I actually had, I wasn't selling drugs, but I also had this hustle because there's 700 people that work in this call center. I had this hustle. I had a guy from New York that was selling me bootleg movies. And so I would buy extra from him and I was selling movies to people at the call center. And here's the thing. I'm dying. I love people in recovery because y'all are so innovative, right? Like other people would be like, my job is really hard. You're like, yo, I'm going to do double job. (laughs) And the crazy thing is too, like, I love my job because I could wear whatever I wanted to work, whatever I wanted. Um, My wife is going to kill me when she hears this episode, but I mean, she already knows this. So I was, I was 19 and I was single. I was in a call center with 700 people, like 65 to 70 percent women. I was, I was having a that. lot of fun. I was having a lot of fun. My mom he got it actually, out of the system. My mom actually worked with me, too. And it was funny, too, because my mom would actually play. Like, my mom would play wing woman, too, with some of the older <laughs> women. Yeah, my mom is a savage. I love her. So uh, that's why my mom is like one of my best friends to this day. So anyway, so Ugh. the side hustle with the movies, I didn't even have to hide that because I would sell movies to my boss. It wasn't like it was drugs. Everybody in their mind, they're like, it's one of those things like everyone knows is technically illegal, but they're fucking movies. Who cares? Like, you right. know, I, right, 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 I, right, want, right. I want my you're able to justify 20. it. Yeah, I want yeah, my yeah. five. For, I was paying a dollar a movie. I was selling them five for 20. Make that money. So uh, I'm doing what I got to do. I'm still selling those. So I remember. So getting back to when I get myself in some legal trouble. So I actually quit selling weed, but uh, I used to make friendly sports bets with people here and there. Uh, and I got, I made a, a bet with someone and I lost, we did a double or nothing. I lost again. Um, I owed this kid like a hundred bucks, something like that. And so he reaches out to me and he's like, yo, can you get me some weed? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like I go get it. Cause in my mind, I'm like, I'm still smoking weed. So I'm like, cool. I could just go get this. I'll get extra. I'll get it for cheap. And then when I go do this for him, it'll clear off a debt. <laughs> Uh, plus he wanted more than what I owed him. So it was like one of those, like I'm giving him like $240 worth. He, I owed him a hundred. So he'd be giving me $140, you know, and, and, and in the end I was pretty much get my shit at a discount. It was, it was just one of those deals. Um, we've all hustled. We all understand exactly what I'm saying, but you hustle extra. I'm just letting you know you hustle extra. So I, I go do that, you know, um, and I go meet up with him. And we do the deal. He's in the car with someone else who I don't even think anything of it at the time. I pull out. Now, keep in mind, like I said, I have a legal job. I'm selling movies, which I was actually going to sell. So I was on my way to work. So I was I had movies I was uh, selling. And so I already had money in two of my pockets. He gives me this money. I throw it in another pocket. I get pulled over. I pull out. I'm at this four-way stop sign. There's a cop on the other side of the four-way stop sign that has his lights going, but no sirens, no nothing. I've never really been in this neighborhood before. Uh, I'm wondering why there's a cop there. Then I eventually see over to my left a little bit down the street, there's a school letting out. So I'm thinking, all oh, cool, like crossing guard duty. I think nothing of it. I go through the four-way stop sign. That cop pulls behind me. Now he's hitting the sirens, uh, tells me to pull over. As soon as I pull over, 
I just get swarmed. It was like seconds and I'm swarmed by all these cop cars, including one jumping up on the hood of my car, pointing a shotgun through the windshield. Uh, they ripped me out of my car. And, you know, to this day, it's funny. Funny thing about that car, too, is it was one of the it was a 1990 Pontiac 3000. So it was one of those like when you open and close the door, the seatbelt on the track goes with it like oh sure yeah, yeah 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 so i'm a really skinny scrawny dude because this is before i really found drinking and started getting fat so i'm i'm really skinny and scrawny um the cop ripped me through the window without opening the door when i got my car back from the impound like the next day the fucking track was still the seatbelt was still closed on it because he pulled me right like pretty much right out Good of the Lord. seatbelt he ripped me out so he has me at the uh, they on, have me at the back of the car. They have me on the floor. You know, uh, I won't necessarily call it pr- police brutality, but um, they were. Not uh, I would. They were. No, they were, they we were can not call it gentle. that. They were not gentle. Um, you know, so how much weed you had on you at that time? I mean, I technically had no more on me, but I sold the kid. Uh, oh, right. I don't even remember how much it was. F- 50 grams is what they weighed out later on. So. But this is how I knew I was caught. It was like some shit out of a fucking movie, dude. I never knew this shit happened. Uh, <laughs> they go in my pocket. The cop pulls money out of my one pocket. Throws He like rifles through it, throws it on the hood. Grabs money out of another pocket. Throws Goes through it, throws it on the hood. He grabs money out of my third pocket. He goes through it. This is the pocket where I put the weed money. He goes through it and he says, got it. Immediately, I just realized the first two pockets you went through, one was from cashing my paycheck for work. The other one was uh, like pretty much the money from the bootleg movies. And you just pulled the weed money out of my pocket. As soon as he said that, I was like, fuck, I just got set up. This is fucking marked money. Like, you I got honest, set because up. there was there was a very short time frame in which, like, I sold the shit to getting pulled over. I honestly wasn't even sure what I was getting in trouble for, you know. Right. Uh, and, and again, I hate to, like, call out police in this way, but, oh, you know, in, in my town, they do shit. Um, I'm Hispanic. Uh, I've been I've been accused of fitting the description before, even though I'm super, super light skinned. And if I don't tell you my name, you think I'm fucking white. But I've been uh, just because of my name, I've, I've been through some shit. So I still in my mind, I'm just like playing dumb. I'm like, maybe they got the wrong person. I don't know. Like, you know, I can't even I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to pretend I ever felt like my life was in danger. Like I never felt like they were going to like shoot me, kill me, like rough me up too, too bad. But I was all in, that I had in my mind was like, I'm just going to cooperate. And, uh, you know, maybe they got the wrong guy. I wasn't it wasn't until they pulled the money out of my pocket. And because this all happened so fast, that's when I was like, shit, I now know what I'm in trouble for. You know, this dude just set me up. And uh, so I go. They take me down to the police station. And when I get down to the police station, they're going through everything. Uh, They get me down. And when they take me down there, you know, that's when I figure out everything that's going on. I figure out that he he set me up. He did this. He did that. I'm now this is someone you worked with, right? No, this was someone who I knew from high school. Oh, a a former high school friend, someone who had, uh, you know, in the past, he had his own drinking problem. And in the past had you know, done some stupid shit. He's actually uh, came to my house and my mom let him like sleep over so he wouldn't go home drunk. 
to his grandmother in the past. Like my mom had looked out for him. Like he knew my parents. And so he did this. And and on top of that too, the the part that really, really, really makes me mad is not that setting up other people is ever cool. Cause I'm a big advocate on like, (laughs) you do your shit, you take, you take your shit like a man. But, um, not only that, but like, he wasn't even dodging real jail time. It was like his second or third. It was like his second DUI or something like that. I mean, he did this to get out of like, fucking 30 days in county jail is what he set me up for to just not do a month in county jail so uh he said i don't know if you up. all felt that that was me rolling my eyes i don't know if you could hear that i had a big <laughs> eye roll there was sound but it wasn't very loud go ahead so he gets me uh we deal with that um you know fast forward a little bit longer i take a i take a plea deal i get sentenced i thought i was going to jail uh funny little story about this so I'm like 99% sure that I'm going to jail. My lawyer tells me you're going to jail. It's a matter of how long, you know, we're going to try and get you down to just like a few months. Um, but they were originally charging me with like delivery of a controlled substance in a school zone, which triples what? the charges. Oh my uh, God. My lawyer got the school zone charges dropped because they had the recorded phone call and you can hear, they had to like direct me to where we were. Cause I wasn't familiar right. with the neighborhood. <gasps> so they got that part dropped because I didn't know where I was at. So I didn't know that I was in a school zone, which that wasn't even like a lie. You know, looking back, like I could say whatever and I could tell yeah. the truth if it was. I legitimately I, I did not know. They brought me in from the other side. I didn't know that I was in a school zone until I was getting pulled over back to that part of the story where I saw the cop with his lights on and I saw the kids coming out of the school. Right, right, right. right I didn't right. even know where I was. Well, and the reason why they do that is so you don't sell weed to kids. Right. So and it's I like, get it's, it. I get yeah, it. And you, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I get yeah. it. But it was just one of those things. So my lawyer yeah. dropped that charge. My lawyer drops, gets that charge dropped. And so uh, I eventually, he pretty much got everything dropped except for uh, possession with intent to delivery of a, a controlled substance of a large amount, um, marijuana, which is for people that don't know, possession with intent to, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, I can't speak for everywhere, but at least in Pennsylvania, possession with intent to delivery is actually the same thing as delivery. There is no actual delivery charge. So for people that don't know, if you get caught with it and they can prove your intent, it doesn't matter if you sold it or you were on your way to sell it. It's the same amount of trouble. It's the same charge. So I get charged with possession with intent to deliver because that was one thing I didn't understand. I was like, how is this? Like, I didn't want to add more trouble, but I was like, how is this possession with intent when I actually did the deal? Oh, that's so, so my, interesting. Yeah. My, my lawyer explained that to me. It's the, it goes like with the whole conspiracy thing. If you hire a hitman, even though if the person's not dead, you still hired it. The, the deed is done. Yeah. That uh, makes sense. Yeah. So they hit, so they hit me with that shit. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to jail. I have this whole big, like party going away party the night before I go in for sentencing. No. I'm trying to figure out how long I'm going to, I don't, I don't know how long I'm going to jail. So I'm just going to smoke and get drunk. And you know, at this point too, I turned 21 while I was on bail so I started <sighs> drinking um, and I picked up drinking really, really quick and I started getting really good at it. So I get really drunk and as high as I could possibly be the night before, um, even smoking on my way to court because I'm going to jail. What the oh, yeah. do I have? What am I going to what am I going to lose? I'm going to jail. That's so normal. So mm-hmm. I show up. Judge actually cuts me a break and uh, I get sentenced to. 42 months of state parole with an immediate suspended sentence to parole or however, however they worded it, but pretty much my jail sentence was immediately converted to parole like that day. How many years is that? Is that Uh, three, three years? Okay. Thank you, math. Yeah. So I never actually technically did a day in jail. I leave that day and 
back to the funny part of the story. So I go over to my PO. I have to go meet with my new PO like that same day, just a few hours later. They had me take a piss test. My levels are extremely high for weed. She can still smell that I'm borderline a little bit hungover, which I'm glad the judge didn't pick up on that. Uh, but she's close enough to me to smell that I'm hungover. And uh, <laughs> funny thing, she was also pregnant. So, of course, her sense of smell was through the roof. Oh, wow. So yeah. she knows I'm hungover. Uh, she sees my piss test and she says to me, she goes, Miguel, why would you show up? How, how do you have this much in your system? Why would you show up to your sentencing high? Did you not use your, your bail time to try and get your life together? I said, look, if I'm being completely honest with you, I thought I was going to jail this morning. So I figured, yeah. what does it matter how hungover I am, how high I am? I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail. And this was kind of like my last party. It was my last hurrah. She goes, although, although that is uh, stupid, she goes, I can't necessarily argue with that logic. Uh, you know, you're, you're at least not lying. You're pretty much whatever. So she goes, from here on out, the levels have to, every piss test I give you, your levels have to come down until it's zero. And then if I ever see anything again, then you're violated. So, Good for her. I mean, so she right, like, because some parole officers, like, their whole job is just to catch you and to, like, you know, punish yeah. you, not to, like, give you chance, not, not that she really gave you a chance, per se, but, like, you know, there are some there are some pro officers who should, they they just want to like catch the bad guy. I mean, anybody who's not whatever. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Technically speaking, I don't think she could have ever locked me up or violated me for it that day anyway, because it was my first piss test. Maybe. Okay. And prior to that, like you know, technically speaking, in that couple minutes since being sentenced and going over there, I hadn't actually. But maybe she could have because you're also not so smoke on bail. So right. Who, so right. technically, she may have. She may not have been anyway. She doesn't. So I then go to a. I start that shit, uh, you know, and then because I can't smoke weed, this is where drinking takes off really, oh, really bad. Right. And uh, yeah, so my drinking picks up really, really heavy at this point um, because I can't smoke. So I'm, I'm going hard. I'm doing everything, uh, you know. I, I'm and do you feel like right? I mean, because sometimes I want to talk about the system in this case. Do you feel like the system did you a disservice by not letting you smoke weed? Or do you feel like this is just like the ex like you needed you needed this to expedite your drinking in order to get to the point where you realized you had a problem? Like if if there if things if like weed was legal and they didn't care, do you feel like you would have never come to terms with you having a drinking problem? Or maybe you're gonna get to that, but you know, I just I, you know this I, is one yeah. of those things that I've legitimately thought about. I've pondered yeah. this. I've contemplated this, you know, back when I was drinking and I wanted to stop drinking, even when I'm sober, this is something that I've like put a lot of thought into. Um, and I'm honestly not sure that I've actually come to a conclusion because I look at it both ways. Uh, I like to be one of those, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate for people all the time, including to myself, you know, even when I like stick up for someone and I defend someone, I'll always hit them with the devil's advocate because I, you know, well, maybe this is why they did this, you know, not, not sticking up for them, but maybe this. So, you know, if I'm doing that to myself, you know, I could say, I could look at it and, and maybe I can genuinely say, you know, if I was able to smoke weed, I would have never started drinking because my story doesn't have other drugs. I really never picked up Coke. I never even tried it. I've never even tried. I mean, considering alcohol, I'm baffled, considering <laughs> alcohol is a legal drug. Although I call it a drug to this day. Yeah. I, so I used to tell people that I never did a drug in my entire life. And they'll be like, you smoke weed. And I'll be like, weed ain't a drug. It's a fucking plant. It's weed. 
And so I used to tell people all the time, like I've never done a drug in my entire life. And I even used to say this back when I was drinking because I didn't look at alcohol as a drug back then. Oh, I'm sure many people. Now, yeah. Now, and you know, I'm, you know, I understand why people can't smoke weed in their recovery. Um, I don't smoke weed in my recovery. Um, but I, I do understand as well that some people do, especially in states where it might be medicinal. I'm 100% not against it. It's definitely a harm reducer. It's way less severe than all the other stuff out there. And, you know, if your story is filled with, you know, you can handle that. Cool. Go for it. Because to this day, if you talk to my wife and tell her, yeah, Miguel's going to start smoking weed again tomorrow. She wouldn't care. I promise you, because I've had this conversation with her, mm-hmm. with my mom, with the, the people that matter, like most to me, knew me and my worst and with drinking. And they will tell you to this day. Um, the reason I'm saying that is not to advocate to, hey, go out and smoke weed in your recovery. Um, and for the people listening, you know, trigger warning, that's not what I wanted you to hear there. What I, the reason I said that is because to answer your question, would I have started drinking? I don't know, because I think if, if I could have continued smoking, I think I was, I was like content at that time. You know, there was never a time in my life where I got so high that I wanted to go drink. But there yeah. have been plenty of times in my life. And, and let me let me say that in a different way. There had never been a time in my life where I had gotten so high that I was like, oh, shit, I'm at a beer. Let me go down. Let me go to the bar and go get uh, beer so I can drink. But there had been plenty of times where I had been so drunk and out of weed where I'm like, I'm going to drive across town drunk now and go get mm. more weed because I'll make the bad decision while I'm drunk. So, again, not justifying, not defending, not doing any of that, you know. I, I do think it's best to not smoke weed in your recovery, but I'm not judging those that are doing what they're doing. That's because at the end of the day, your recovery is your recovery. What works right. best for you. And I'm not in charge of anybody else's recovery. I'm only in charge of mine. So that no, I, said, I still co-sign on that. Yeah, very much. So, so. I don't know. Uh, back to the original question. I don't know if I would have started drinking, but who knows? It might have just it. I mean, shit, like you said, too, it might have just expedited the process because who knows what happens in life. You know, I was also it, the, the other part that's really hard to answer that, too, is I just turned 21. So now I could legally just go to a bar with friends. So who knows, too, because that could have easily have changed all of those years that I'm saying that before I wasn't 21 yet, too. So now that I'm 21 around this so, legal yeah. trouble. So it, it changes because now I could go to a bar. So who knows? Maybe a couple of times I'm just going out to the bar with friends and, you know, maybe I don't drink. Maybe I just have a couple of drinks but maybe it, it opens up the floodgate. I, I genuinely, I do not know. Um, I just know that as soon as I turn 21. Well, and how was your, how was your mental health? Like, you know, I can speak for myself by saying like, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I, I don't use any, I, I, I don't use any, uh, I don't smoke weed and I don't drink, you know, I'm totally sober. And, you know, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that when I, you know, use anything that mellows me out, you know, I'm a heroin addict too. So uh, I just, my mental health gets less and less, you know, I, I, I become less productive. I feel less happy about myself. I move less, you know, that comes in, in with the health and fitness and movement and all that stuff. So for me, like, you know, how were you feeling before you started really drinking heavy? And like, you know, did you, you said you had felt content, you know, and that had you maybe been able to keep drinking or sorry, been able to keep smoking, maybe you would never gone down this pathway of drinking so heavy. But did you feel like when you smoked weed, you were still like happy and content? 
Before I started drinking, yes. Um, after I started drinking mm-hmm. and I started opening up like a lot of those receptors in my brain and a lot of the yeah. a lot of the other stuff started kicking in, then there would be times where I would smoke and I would, you know, start falling into that whole like panic mode and shit. Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? Um, you know, and, and just so I, I, the weed would kind of trigger it after I was drinking, but beforehand, not necessarily so much for me. But, uh, no, I, I probably would have gotten into drinking anyway. My 21st birthday, I went to Atlantic City and I drank for like 12, 14 hours completely straight. Um, you know, and, and <laughs> another funny war story there. So I was on bail. Um, technically, yeah, I was technically still on bail when I turned 21. So uh, my 21st birthday is in August. I didn't get convicted and start that sentence that I spoke of until November. So three months before I go to court for that, um, I'm in Atlantic city for my 21st birthday and we go out We're you know, casino hopping, we're drinking, we're doing this and that. And we took some weed down with us and we go out and we're smoking weed on the beach and I go, someone saw a cop coming, like a bike cop was coming down the boardwalk. Cause like the sun was coming up. It's like five or six o'clock in the morning, something like that. And someone saw a cop coming and I'm on bail. I can't get caught with this shit. So I hand it to someone behind me. He hands it to the person behind him. He hands it to the person behind him. We're all going up the steps to get off the beach. We were with this one older guy that I know. And he apparently was the only one that didn't hear us that said the cop is coming because he was the last one in line. It should have been his job to ditch it somewhere. Do whatever you want. I mean, there's a big ass fucking ocean behind you, whatever you're going to do. But uh, (laughs) he's the only one that didn't hear. So the cops roll up. And they start talking to us now and he still has it in his hand the entire time. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, they never, I, I don't know. I mean, we were outside. I don't know if they didn't smell it or whatever the case may be. We never got in trouble for it, but I'm like, fuck that shit Maybe is it's... still in his hand right now. I, they also no. because the, the, it all got shut down. The, the yeah, cops man, said, what Atlantic are you guys City, doing out yeah. here? And, um, I mean, we just told him, we told him half of the truth. We told him, look, we're celebrating my 21st birthday. I just turned 21 at midnight. So I've been 21 for six hours. We've been drinking. We're pretty drunk. We just needed a little bit of air. We didn't want to get sick inside the casino. We just needed a little bit of air. And he's like, all right, well, you just can't be on the beach. Go up to the boardwalk. Like the cop was actually cool as hell. So now that was cool. Yeah. So we're back up there anyway. So um, I just want to highlight that y'all threw that old man under the bus. I'm just saying y'all yeah, threw the sure. old man under the <laughs> for sure. So, uh, we, uh, you know, fast forwarding a little bit more. We're now, um, into my mid twenties. Drinking is getting really, really bad. Uh, um, and at this per- point you have twins that you're taking care of. You're trying to kick, take care of yourself. Well, listen, I'll Are be honest. I can't, even, I can't even necessarily take credit for taking care of the twins. I mean, I'm paying child support. Um, you know, I'm sending money, I guess, if they need something. But at this point, I'm already not really in their life um, okay. to the, to this day. I'm not really in their life uh, physically the way I would like to be. I reach out. We talk on the phone every once in a while. Uh, but I, I spend so much time in my partying years and away from them that they as the older they got, because they just turned 16 two weeks ago. So the older they got, the more and more. Uh, resistant they were towards me pretty much. And it's hard for me to argue with them because like I told you the way I felt about my dad, they're now feeling those same exact feelings towards me. 
So they never seen me drunk the way I seen my dad drunk because I was justified it by, I know I'm doing this and that. So I'm just not going to put it around him. So I took, I did, I was just as shitty as my dad in that aspect, but I did it in the opposite. My dad would always drunk around me. So I figured I'm not going to be drunk around them. So I'm just not going to be around them. So I, I was just as shitty. I just did it the opposite way. So that way they would never, but to this day, I don't think they've ever seen me drunk for that reason. However, they've also barely seen me. So it's just as bad, if not worse. So uh, that's a really I'm, interesting point. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. Like if you were drinking and drugging and you didn't want to be around them while you're drinking and drugging, then you can't be around them. So then they exactly. don't see you. Yeah. So I'm now to the point where, you know, my alcoholism is really starting to pick up. I'm not necessarily drinking every day. I'm not necessarily drinking all day. I wasn't one of those alcoholics um, that, you know, the minute I woke up, I had to start drinking. You know, I wasn't rinsing my mouth out with with beer, vodka. I wasn't one of those. I was the alcoholic that as soon as I started drinking, whether it was the morning time because we were at the beach or I was watching football in the afternoon or, you know, I waited till after work, whatever the case may be. I was the alcoholic that as soon as I started drinking, I would there was no off switch. I would just drink until I blacked out. So yeah. I was I was that version. So I was to the point where I was pretty much blacking out almost every night, you know, sometimes not starting till later. Uh, I had to answer your other question. I was no longer working at T-Mobile. When T-Mobile found out that I got into the legal trouble, they, they tried to find a way. They couldn't necessarily fire me for it because I was already working there, but they found ways to weed me out. Now those scoring metrics in which I was so high on. Um, and to be honest, I was young and I had so much on my mind dealing with the court case that I was slacking off at work a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they pretty much used everything. Instead of giving traditional, you know, good employees the, the extra warnings and this and that, they pretty much fast-tracked me through the disciplinary process until they could fire me as first chance they got. So they ended up letting me go. So that was also a big part of. of Do you feel like, you know, like that is just a misunderstanding and like a stigma against people who get in trouble with the legal system? Like, you know, they just, oh, now you're bad. Suddenly you were like a golden child and now you got in legal trouble and now you're bad and get out. It was, it was a little bit of both. I think it was some of the higher ups that found out that, um, you know, I think it was a, a little bit of them passing on judgment and not wanting this person around them. But at the same time, if I can accept responsibility for myself, then right. if if I if I keep performing the way I was before, you know, if I'm not fucking up and taking some light little shortcuts at work, then I don't give them the ability to put me through the disciplinary process to to have the ability to terminate me. So I also have to own up to where to where I fucked up there as well, because yeah, you're I could have just street. stayed. Yeah, I could have just stayed working there with them hating me and waiting for me to fuck up and just not fucking up and giving them that reason. But I did. And so they did. And at the end of the day, they didn't break any rules. They didn't break any laws. They put me through a disciplinary process that they completely had the right to the piece of paper that I signed that said, this is the process. First, you get a verbal warning. Then you get a write up. Then you get suspended. Then you get terminated. I gave them the ability to take all those steps. So, you know, maybe if I don't get myself in legal trouble, maybe it's a few extra verbal warnings. Maybe it's a couple extra write-ups because they also have those abilities. But at the end of the day, they didn't break any rules. It's not like I never really passed judgment on them. They, you know, it is what it is. I got to, I got to own myself. Um, 
I'm surprised I actually had that mentality when I was that young because when I was younger, I did hold a lot of resentment for them. Oh, they fucking ran me out because they think I'm some criminal and this and that. But I also knew that they didn't break any laws. So it's not like I was never trying to seek like vengeance or anything. It's not like I ever contacted a lawyer and was like, I'm going to sue them for defamation of character because I knew I knew whatever. So uh, I'm that. But that was so you're three years into parole at this time. Not, or not even parole, sorry, probation. Yeah, not even. Um, I was actually a um, months, months. Uh, and when they did that, I was like months into it, and then I got let go. So the problem too is that I was on probation, parole, whatever you want to call it, and I don't have a job, but I'm getting pretty decent unemployment, and my bills aren't that high. So I'm making enough off of unemployment to pay all my bills, and I'm 21. So I'm pretty much my entire life is go to the bar late at night, drink until 2 a.m., come back to my apartment with my friends because I wasn't living with my mom, come back to my apartment with my friends, continue drinking, do whatever, pass out at 6 a.m., wake up at like noon, 2 p.m., whatever the case may be, you know, be hungover. And, and repeat because I didn't have a job. I was just collecting unemployment. And that was pretty much, that was the repeat cycle almost every day. It's and, so uh, wild to me. I'm like thinking about what you said earlier, like hustler, like at this job, flirting. And like, now I'm a bum, you know, now I'm and a yeah, bum getting free money. Just yeah, yeah. Boom, boom. We can, we like, can say it. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's look at, look at what fucking alcohol will do to you. Look at, look at what it was turning me into. It was turning me into a lazy piece of shit. So, uh, so I'm dealing with that. And then, you know, I would, from that point too, I would now be getting jobs. Um, but I couldn't get good jobs anymore. No matter what my resume for sales service and this and that, now I have this felony on my record because that was a big thing with the whole thing is I was convicted with a third degree felony. So, <gasps> Oh shit. Um, I guess I didn't put that together. Okay. Yeah, so which, and also for our listeners, if you don't have a felony or if you don't hundred percent understand when I say third degree felony, that is the, lowest level of felony you know like f felony one is like what murderers get felony three is like that's like above a mist the numbers go down so th three is i guess the lightest felony but at the end of the day it's still a felony and let's so just real quick highlight for our listeners how bunk that is because uh it's a third degree felony that's life-changing for some weed i just real quick want to just put my two cents yep. in there as your host moving on yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's the problem, too, is when I'm going out to fill out these applications, you know, in that little checkbox, have you ever been convicted of a felony or at least yep. within the last seven years? You know, I got to say yes. And so uh, uh, this, you know, I can't use the term funny story here, but a shitty story about that. So I then I have to resort to working for like uh, temp agencies. And so I get a job with the temp agency. They send me to this call center, you know, um, I'm banging out my job. I'm getting really, really good at it in a short amount of time. And the company hired me on. And when the company hired me on, they also promoted me. And they were like, we want you to be a team lead. You'll start your training. This will be your new pay with the company. Uh, you'll be eligible for this raise. You'll start getting benefits and all this cool stuff. And I was like, all right, awesome. I'm now like 23, 24. And uh, as soon as like, has it, I, I challenge anybody to tell me if you've ever been promoted and fired in the same day. So they pull me in the <laughs> office at like eight or 9 a.m. the beginning of my day. And they, they said everything I just said. And then about three or four hours later, they pull me back into the office 
And they're like, now there's more people in the office. Now, it's not just the lady that promoted me. Now there's like two extra people and um, a security officer as well. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like immediately in my mind, I'm like, shit, my PO is in the building and they're checking up on me or something like that. And uh, no. So they then they tell me, well, we ran your background check. You came back as uh, with having a felony. So we have to let you go. And I said, but you just promoted me this morning. Like, does my work not speak for itself? Like, I've been here for months. You've seen what I'm capable of. What does it matter if I'm a felon? You know, she hit me with the whole, I understand that, but we have policies. I wish there was something I could do, blah, 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 whatever. I will actually give her credit. I could see it in her face. I almost genuinely believe her, but I believe that it was, it might've legitimately been above company policy. And one of those things, like, She's not willing to put her job on the line to lie for me because she didn't know me long enough. But I genuinely believe that she's not the one that wanted to fire me. She was no, really I, cool. But I, I make that face just because I'm always thinking about yeah. big system stuff. You know what no, I'm saying? Absolutely. Like so, and her hands are tied and I get that. And, and you know, whatever. I clearly wasn't there. I get that. But it's also like it's instead of going against the system, you know, she's like, this is the things that are set in place. Sorry, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. So not only that, so I'm like, all right, cool. So, you know, uh, I guess you're demoting me back to the position I pretty much had this morning, you know, back to the original pay and, you know, back to the temp agency and this and that she goes, no, and we can't have you working here anymore. And then I was like, that's when I started getting angry. I was like, I got hired on the temp agency knows I have a felony and this and that apparently then they hit me with all the bullshit. Like, you know, they don't have to disclose so much information unless you get hired on by the company and all this shit and all that. And so from that too, then they, they, they took my work ethic down a notch because now when the temp agency would send me to companies, I'm like, fuck, I don't even want to, I'm not even yeah. going to overperform. I'm going to do the bare minimum to not get fired because God, I mean, right now y'all don't even know who I really am. The, the shitty person that you might think I am. And, uh, y'all don't really know the truth about me. So I'm going to just do the bare minimum. So pretty much every job I have from there on out, uh, through the temp agency, I did the bare minimum. And that's pretty much what got me back into the restaurant industry is, you know, now I'm getting off of papers. I'm off of parole now. Um, so I'm back to smoking weed all day, every day again. I'm drinking all day, every day again. Uh, we'll never stop that. But I, uh, I'm now back in the restaurant industry because I'm allowed to be. The restaurant industry was perfect because I could be hungover. Mm -hmm. I could have tattoos. I mm -hmm. could have a felony and I don't have to pass a piss test. I'm back home. You know, this is, I mean, I did I've that arrived. Through, I did that through all of my high school life. Pretty much. I worked in the restaurant industry since the first job I had up until working at T-Mobile. Every job was the restaurant industry. And then, you know, I'm like, fuck it. I'm back. Cool. So went back into serving, went back into bartending, doing my thing, just making my money, drinking after work, partying that continued going on. Um, I then get into management. And when I get into management at a company, now my wife is never actually calling. What's up? Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I, I love that. Like, so some of these stories are like, you know, when it, when it comes to talking to my people are uh, like about, you know, in spite of yourself, they're still like, we should make him a manager. You know, you're like, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just so funny. Like we can't even help it. You know, like that work ethic is, is there and you show up and you do your job. And even if you're drinking and drugging, like they're like, okay, like we should make him a manager. So it was just well, kind of yeah, like that. I mean, it's the restaurant industry. So, I mean, who's really sober, 
And, you know, and, and <laughs> That's because, so real. like I said, because I didn't have like a hard drug problem. So it's not like I wasn't running to the bathroom and doing like cocaine and they didn't have to worry about me shooting up or anything like that. So right. it was like, all right, cool. You know, maybe maybe he has a he finds a way to drink a couple beers at work, but he's still performing. He's really good at his job. So cool. So uh, meanwhile, my man, my my wife is now she's turning into. Uh, my drinking is getting bad enough that we're getting to the point in our relationship. Whoa, 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 whoa. When did you meet your wife? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Let's shit. go back. All right. Oh, my yeah. God. Come on. I'm a so, sucker for this love shit. Go ahead. All right. So I met her when I got back into the restaurant industry. Um, actually, one of the first jobs I went back into in the restaurant industry, I was uh, shit like 25, 26. And I was working at a TGI Fridays. Uh, our love story is I was a server. She was a hostess and <laughs> I'm already uh, blushing. I would flirt with her so that way I can get extra sat so that way I can make more money. It's that hustler <laughs> mentality. There's this beautiful blonde and, um, you know, she's stunning, I, by the way. I say this. I say this respectfully as possible because my wife knows how I talk about her and it's my sense of humor. So there's this beautiful blonde hostess with a big butt. And that's what I'm a sucker for. I'm a sucker for a blonde with a big butt. So, you know, there's her B -B -B. And then on, on top of that, too. Yo, when I tell you my family are like they're my wing people for sure. So I told you about my mom at T-Mobile. My sister is a hostess at TGI Fridays at the time. So she's in her ear as well. Like I'm I'm in the back flirting with her. And then my sister is in her ear. He's my brother is such a good guy. And he's this and that knowing that I'm, I'm a piece of shit dog. Like I'm not like a piece of shit human being, but I'm a piece of shit when it comes to women and like, I'm a dog and I'm doing this and that. So I'm flirting with her to get extra sat. It's working. Cause she's young. She's like 21 at the time. Um, so it's, it's working. And, uh, you know, then it, it, it turned into a, you know, we're, we're all adults here. So we can, we can read between the lines. One thing turned into another. We started having some fun. And then, you know, I started realizing that I actually do like her a lot. Mm. She liked me. It turned into more. Um, it especially became easier when we weren't working together anymore because I just have a very flirty personality. Even if I'm not being unfaithful, it's just my personality. So it became a lot easier when we weren't working together anymore because uh, she's a hustler too. So she was working three jobs. TGI Fridays was her third job. So she quit that and was going back to her other two jobs. And, uh, so we we're dating, we're having fun. And, you know, I'm glad you actually said that because this is a big point in our relationship as well. So I start telling her, you know, the more and more we're together, I'm opening up to her more about like, you know, I have these kids I don't get to see, but mm. I want to be, I want to be a father again. I want more kids. And, you know, a little bit into our relationship, I start telling her like, I want more kids. Like, how would, do you want to get pregnant? And she's, she's not with it yet you know, she shrugged off the conversation the first few times. And then eventually uh, pretty much as polite as she could, but as firmly as she could. And I don't blame her for saying this, but she tried to find, I'll give the blunt version, but she tried to find the politest way possible to pretty much say you have kids that you're not in their life. How are you ready for another kid? And that's again, a, that's a call. She out. said it, she said it way more polite, way more respectful. It probably took her 20 minutes to say that sentence because she was trying not to offend me, hurt my feelings. Um, she also, in a very polite way, called me out on the fact that like I only ever bring this up when I'm drinking. 
you know, try, Ooh, have this conversation, yeah. try and have this conversation sober and not like at 1am when you're already like damn near ready to pass out. And so she called me out on those facts. Uh, we then continue doing our thing. We're now, uh, I, I continue bringing it up and she eventually gets to the point where she hits me with the Beyonce. Um, if you want to have kids, if you like it, then put a ring on it. I'm not having a kid out of wedlock, you know, uh, you know, I'm a single lady. Yeah. She hit me with that shit. She um, hit you with the Beyonce. I love yeah, that. She did. Okay. She did. So, um, she wasn't wrong though. So we are a coworker of mine at the time who I was working in a small private owned restaurant and I uh, was really close with all of my coworkers. Uh, two of them actually got married. Shout out. It was actually not that this really matters, but still shout out. Cause it was dope. It was the first gay marriage I had ever actually attended. Oh, fun. Um, it was, it is was, that, two, it was is that kind of women. rare for Allentine, Pennsylvania. Allentine, uh, to, to be honest, well, this is technically Eastern Pennsylvania, but at the time I think it was rare. Cause I, I could be wrong because, um, as much as, as much as I, I love gay people, you know, you know, I, I don't, I'm trying to be careful what I say. Cause the wrong person's listening. I don't want to like offend anyone. Um, when, when I say like, I don't care about like gay marriages, I don't mean that like, I don't care that they shouldn't be married. I mean, like, I don't care, like in the aspect of like, love who you love and, and be with it. Like, I don't care if you're guy and guy, girl and girl. I don't, I, love that's is the love part is love. that I don't, yeah, that's the part that I don't care about. So I'm not a hundred percent up on all of the laws because I mean, me being not gay, it's not something that like, unfortunately I never fought on that picket line for him. I never was at their protest. So, but I'm pretty sure that this is around the time where it actually, it hadn't been legal in Pennsylvania for that long. Um, oh, it might've okay. even been the first year that it was legal in Pennsylvania. So but these were two women that were like a little bit older. Like they had been together since college. This was like a 20 some year old relationship. And if I remember correctly, they were waiting for it to be legal in Pennsylvania because they didn't want to go to another state. It meant a lot to them to be able to do this in Pennsylvania. Mm. So they get married and we're at the, um, we're at the table. I love them. Shout out Bev and Lori, because being at your wedding, I love you girls. This is where my life changes a lot. So we're sitting at their, uh, at our dinner table with, they pretty much, it was one table for all the restaurant people that, that worked at the restaurant with, uh, with Bev. And so we're sitting at the table and, um, all my coworkers are busting my balls. When are you guys next? Cause we're like the longest relationship of everybody there. It's been a few years. When are you guys next and blah, blah, blah. And when's your turn. And, uh, at the time the gears were already rolling. So two weeks later, I, uh, I proposed. She How'd said, you do yes. it? Tell me everything. No, no, yes. go back, yes. go back, go back. All right. Okay. Uh huh. So their wedding is the beginning of June. And then on June 30th that year, this would have been June 30th, 2015, I believe. So June 30th, 2015, I got uh, a restaurant, a local steakhouse with really good food. We'd been there for Valentine's day, probably a year and a half or two years prior. And it was the first time I ever told her that I love her was at this restaurant. Um, I had them write, I love you on the dessert. Uh, we had great service and all this and all that. And it was funny when the server dropped it off, he drops off this like dessert that says, I love you. And, um, 
it says uh he like he has a sense of humor so he goes this isn't from me this is from the guy sitting next to you so <laughs> <That's> cute <laughs> and she looks at me and she goes is this real and i was like yeah i love you and you know um as much as i like to talk and this and that and i'm like a very outgoing person i have trouble with some stuff like that sometimes so that was kind of like the icebreaker that leads to the conversation cool um we have a really 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 wonderful night uh so we now fast forwarding back to the engagement we go back to that same restaurant we're sitting in that same exact booth that we sat and okay. i set it up i set it up where um i dropped off the ring that night before and or the the afternoon of whatever i invite my immediately family yes uh my immediate family her immediate family and we have uh we have them all sitting at a table but on the other side of the restaurant and she doesn't see any of them we're sitting down we're eating <clears throat> uh we get through appetizers and when the appetizer comes out our our server comes out with a dessert with a sparkler and she stops at our table and she sets it down and my at the time i'll use the word girlfriend because it's the last night that she's only my girlfriend um she goes you guys can't see this but i'm bouncing in my chair i'm so excited <laughs> she goes uh i don't i'm sorry sweetie i don't think this is ours we're still waiting on our appetizer and i knew the waitress i'd worked with her at another restaurant so she couldn't even keep it in she had to pretty much run away from the table she goes no it's yours and she like runs away and she couldn't even keep it in and Mallory then looks at me and she goes, what the fuck is going on? Cause that's my wife. That's like her personality. This is why I, I love, love her. her. So she goes, what's going on. So then I get out of the booth. I get down on one knee. I propose. Uh, she, she says, yes, we hug all that cool stuff. Everybody in the restaurant starts clapping. Yay! And then uh, her, like I said, her family and my family were on the other side of the restaurant sitting down this entire time. So they knew what was going on now. So they all start standing <gasps> up and clapping. And when I'm hugging her, she goes, is that your brother? Is that my dad? Is, Aww. are our families here? And I go, yeah, we're not having dinner here. So let's go over there. This is where the rest of the dinner is going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny too. Like, I'll just be completely open with our listeners because, uh, this is just how I always roll on my podcast. We're going to have to take a break here in a few minutes because uh, Katie has to get off to work and this is going to pick Sorry. up later. However, I uh, don't want to go. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> we'll pick we'll pick up. So uh, the last part I'll close out the engagement story with is uh, she's like, we're getting into like second course. We're having appetizers. All of our families around. We're having fun. And she goes, because it's her sense of humor again. She goes. The family was here before the proposal, right? And I said, yeah. She goes, what if I would have said no? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, because she knows, too, that I also play a lot of poker. She goes, I was like, well, you know, I'm not afraid to gamble on a big hand. And, and like I hit her with that suave shit. And she was like, oh, you're, <laughs> you're an asshole and blah, blah, blah. Because she doesn't like being the center of attention. So Aww. there's that. And, you know, that's that's how we. uh that's how we get engaged. And I will, we'll, we'll pause, beautiful. We'll pause there for now. And we'll pick up. Cause like I said, I'm just so open with our listeners as it is. Um, or, or I should say, I, I believe you're open with the listeners, miss host Katie Mack. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for listening uh, for Sting Fit uh, uh, I, I, I just, I want to pause before we, we dive into this, the next half. This has been really effing cool. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And we have more to go because I kind of want to know where you were at drinking wise during this proposal. Well, like cliffhanger. No, don't answer. We're cliffhangering this. Where were you at? Did you drink at your proposal or, at, you know, at, when you proposed? What was it like with your wedding? Then when y'all get pregnant? I have so many questions because so many of the things that I'm, you know, a lot of times it's about getting sober, but then it's how do we live sober? What do we, how do we decide to live sober and how does it affect the rest of the people around us? So we got lots of unanswered questions. Uh. Okay, so mini bathroom break that lasted 48 hours. Let's pick right back up from my favorite part, the magical proposal of dreams. Now, I, you know, okay, I'm a sucker, right? I grew up in this society in which you find the one, and it sounds like you were looking for the one too, right? Someone to have a family with. Um, but how I kind of want to, I want to wrap it back into, you know, recovery and drinking because for me, it's so much of my dysfunction really flourished in my relationships. I was like very functional at work, very functional with my friends and even uh, like on like you know, work, work growth. But where my dysfunction really surfaced was in my romantic relationships. Did you have a very similar thing or did you and Mallory, did, like, did Mallory like, you know, bring it up ever even at this point? And what was her awareness uh, with your drinking and your history? Um, I mean, you guys have been together for a chunk of time before you proposed, but yeah. What was some of that when she decided to tether herself to you for her life? Crazy. So, <laughs> so I would say y'all can that, tell I'm, I'm not married. You can tell I'm not married. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my drinking at that point, uh, right around uh, the time we got engaged in that part of my life and our relationship, um, I'd say my drinking was probably peaking as far as I, I was pretty much as, as bad as I could get at that point. And I was, I was to that point where, you know, I was drinking till I blacked out every night. Uh, we were getting to the point where she never actually said the words, I think you're an alcoholic. She never mm. said, I think you have a drinking problem. However, she did hint to me and she never gave me an ultimatum, even, even up until the day we got married. Uh, you know, even up until I got sober, there was never a, a time where she gave me an ultimatum, but there were times where we would go out and we'd be going out with friends or uh, especially if she knew I was going to be around a certain crowd or doing a certain thing, she would always try and like kind of set the bar and, Hey, well, let's not stay past this time, please. Mm. Or, you know, cause she knew that I like making I, deals. Exactly. She knew that once yeah. I got a few, once I got to a certain point, she knew it was pretty much uncontrollable and she knew what she was going to have to deal with. She knew that there was that, that sweet spot that like I could have a few drinks, I could have fun, I could be social and it would come off normal before she was pretty much borderline babysitting an adult. And right. I, I right. was never, I was never, ever violent. Um, but I was angry and aggressive in different ways. Like um, right. I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't even say like, verbally abusive but i would just kind of be like an asshole like 
oh, well, if you want to leave, just leave. I'll figure out another way to get home or I'll Uber or uh, my favorite. Well, my favorite line back then or my favorite move, which I'm pretty ashamed of now, is I would uh, I would threaten her that I would drive myself home. Oh, my God. I and so, so she wouldn't want me. She wouldn't want me drinking and driving. So she would stick around or that's oh. how I would get her to pick me up from places, too, at, you know, two, three, four in the morning, whatever the case may be. You know, babe, can you come pick me up? I'm sleeping. I got to work in the morning. Fine. I'll just drive myself home and right. I would hang up the phone. And then two seconds later, where are you? I'm on my way. All that stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, pretty yeah. much where I was with that. And, uh, you know. I, I could tell she was unhappy with my drinking, but like I said, I was never, I was never put in that spot where I had to be told. Um, my mom was actually a person who would also like, do you have to drink when you do this? Do you have to drink when we're going here? Do you have to do this? Do you have to do that? I was told later on after I already sobered up, I was told that there was at least a couple, I don't know exactly how many, but at least a couple interventions that were planned that never went through because they were scared from from what they knew about addiction and what they knew about interventions. They knew that there was a chance it might work and then there was a chance it could make the situation worse. And I think that they were scared that I would be the person that would make it worse because I'm always trying to prove to other people. So once I think I think if someone would have actually came out and said the words that I'm an alcoholic, I'm not sure I would have responded well to that. And I think it would have made things even worse for a longer period of time for me. I find it so interesting because at your point and or at, you know at this point in your life, you know you have uncles and other family members who had been struggling with addiction, who had passed away from uh, either addiction tendencies or uh, kind of tethering themselves to drugs and alcohol, um, and so like the word addiction is in your vocabulary, and then to have them sort of like want to tiptoe around that. Um, I find that just, you know, a lot of people don't like, well, when a lot of people get sober, they, they're like, I don't, I didn't know anybody else who, I mean, probably people who struggle, but I didn't know anybody else who ever thought about getting sober. Now you have the people who had been struggling in your life. Did you have any other family members or friends or, you know, how my life is, is like, I got people who I call like my cousins and my aunts who are my cousins, my aunts. Right? Oh yeah. I'm poor. Like I got a million of those. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so like, you know, do you have any people that were just that you were close to that had gotten sober or had tethered their addictions? Maybe so like they didn't. I have a lot of people in my life who stopped drinking like hard liquor. Right. They were like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I have some alcoholic tendencies. Uh, I'm not going to drink liquor, but I'll just now drink beer. So they've had you could you would know at a party. Don't give them the party drink. Go go bring them a Coors Light. You know, I don't know. That was like my that was my lens of addiction. Yes. Yeah, so I was told. Um, so like you said, I, I definitely I knew that there was plenty of people with with addiction in my family, but I, I was too busy comparing on the differences and not the similarities. So mm -hmm. for me, it was like, all right, well, the rest in peace to both my uncles. But, you know, one was addicted to crack cocaine. Well, I'm not doing any hard drugs. Then you have that's the one that overdosed. And then the one that uh, took his own life. You know, again, that was that was cocaine and his his wife divorced them or was divorcing them and all that stuff. And, you know, my fiance isn't threatening to leave me, so I, I can't be that same person. And then looking at my dad, you know, he would miss he would miss child support and he was going 
uh, you know, he was, he was on the harder drugs and this and that. So I was just too busy comparing to what I wasn't. Um, but I did have one person in my life and I actually interviewed him here on the podcast. His name is Justin and he, he was one of my closest friends. Um, at that time in my life, he was, he was a close friend, but he was, we were nowhere near as close as we are now. So we were on the same pool team and the pool team is, you know, we would, it, we were all getting shitty all the time. It was at a private club, which we could stay and drink till four or five in the morning, you know, whatever we wanted to do um, for them, for him specifically, it was cocaine was a big issue for him. So, you know, they would, they would be doing Coke all night and they would be doing their thing. And, you know, we would all just be drinking and partying together. So he had this situation in which um, he took some bad Coke and found out it was actually laced with, I believe, heroin. And out. he overdosed and he was in the hospital. Like, I think he like damn near died. I don't know how close it was to that. So I don't want to be too dramatic, but he was in a really, really bad shape. And the doctor pretty much told him, you know, at your age, and doing drugs, you got to be careful with this stuff. You know, you're getting into your late thirties and you can't just keep doing this. It'll, it'll get really bad for you really quickly. And so he came home, locked himself away from the pool team, uh, from all of his friends in general, and pretty much locked away in his apartment and was going through his own detox and was going through his, his own little getting started sober journey. So a, a, another interesting thing about that quick is He's also in the restaurant industry. So I had friends that I knew that worked with him. Plus you have the pool team. None of us had heard from him. Um, we even had one of his roommates who we knew. And even he hadn't really seen him in the house and whatnot. And he was just kind of like hiding away from everyone. Uh, people went over, knocked on the door. He pretty much hid away like a vampire in the dark. So hmm. he, he pops out of nowhere eventually. And he kind of, you know, starts interacting with people and he came over to my apartment and one day it was like before a pool match, he was like rejoining the pool team. I guess you could say he was just, he was ready to come back out. None of us had a hundred percent known what's going on. All anybody knew is that he was in the hospital and that he was alive. That's all anybody knew. No one really knew all the details, uh, knowing what we knew about him. And, you know, especially with Coke, we all had our ideas, but no one a hundred percent knew what exactly happened. So he comes over to my apartment and this is probably um, this is the October before I got married. So this is six months before I was married and he sits down and he's talking and he's like, yo, Migs, this happened. And I'm, I'm done with drugs. I'm, I'm sobered up now. You know, I, I think he had like two or three weeks at the time and he's like, I'm cleaning up. And so he didn't even realize but that was the first time the ball ever really got rolling in my head. I started asking mm. questions. Uh, I don't know if he knew he was speaking to an alcoholic because, and again, the first thing we learn is we can't call other people alcoholics. We can't diagnose other people. We can only diagnose ourselves. Uh, but he knew my tendencies. He knew my drinking all uh, to the point every night, drinking and driving, 
you know, justifying everything. So I think he had ideas that I had some of those isms, but I think he was so early in his sobriety. Honestly, I, I don't want to say he didn't care, but he had way more on his own plate to worry about. Uh, but he didn't even realize that by sharing his story with me, he was, he was really starting to at least lay some groundwork. So uh, fast, I, I guess that answers that question, but fast forwarding a little bit into the story as well. Well, can, can I pause? I, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember. I'm just curious. Was there something that he said or something that he planted or do, is there like a phrase that sticks out to you that you're like, it was my first kind of touchstone with sobriety, but like, was it something like I couldn't stop and I wanted to, just, or he was just the first person that I knew from my drinking. So, you know, we always compare mm. ourselves to people that, you know, again, we, we look at the differences. So he was, we always try, at least for me, I always tried to surround myself with people that were, I guess, worse off than me, because then how could I be an alcoholic? You know, I have my own apartment. I have a fiance. I have a car. I have a job. I have this. I have that. You know, this is someone and, you know, it sounds bad to speak of him like this, but I think he would agree on some of this. And it's some of the things we touched on even when I interviewed him. So he was one of those people that had an apartment with other roommates, but they weren't paying the rent because they were spending the money on drugs. And he would have to go from job to job and he didn't have a license and he didn't have a car. And, you know, he would always have to borrow money from people. So he was one of the people that I would consider myself off, I guess, better off than at the time. And because he was older than me. So I was like, he's older mm. than me and I have more than him. But when he sat down and he said that, right? I was like, I was like, there's now there's this this person. And, and more so it was, this is the first time that someone not blood related to me actually sat down and this is my first contact with someone actually getting sober, especially so early on in their sobriety that, and it was someone that I cared about as a person. And so it was like, I was almost like able to like celebrate him. Like, dude, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. That's so mm. awesome. And it was cool to hang around him because even though I wasn't saying that I was an alcoholic, even though I wasn't even honestly sure if I was an alcoholic at that point, it was someone that when I hung around him, I could, I would know that I wouldn't drink as much because oh my I didn't God, that's be so bad real. around him. So it was, that was like my, just my first contact with someone who, and more so too, in my adult life, that was my first contact with someone that I was actually seeing sober up because my uncle, when he had that short stint of uh, being clean, I was so young and my other uncle that overdosed, I never seen him clean. So this was the first time I was seeing someone actually get clean in my adult life. So how was Justin's uh, journey with sobriety or with uh, maybe like California sober? Or what, what, what did he, he, uh, he he's still he drinking? Just, it was, it was a hundred to zero. That was it. Yeah. It was so no more, no more drinking at all. So for him either. He was, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it an ultimatum, his job, at the time, the restaurant he went into, like I said, he disappeared from everyone, including his job. So he went in, he told them what happened. You know, he went in expecting to just pick up his last paycheck and, mm. you know, hey, I'm sorry. You know, thanks for the opportunity. It was fun. You know, I'm just here to get my last check, bow out, you know, and it is what it is. That's kind of what he expected. And he found out from Spencer and Carissa, his bosses. And again, I'm using names here because two more people that I've interviewed on the podcast oh, cool. um, individually, his bosses. I don't know if he didn't know, but they opened up to him that they were also in recovery. 
Oh, so, wow. And these were the owners of the restaurant, not just managers. So they had the willpower and the ability to be like, all right, look, you know, we understand, you know, but you want to get sober. So cool. Come to a meeting. I think it was Carissa that was like, come to this NA meeting with me. And, you know, as long as you continue to not use and you continue to do the next right thing, you can keep your job and we'll work things out. And so he was able to keep that job in his recovery, working for two people that were also in recovery. And so that was able to be a big part for him. And again, something that he opened up to me about, which is something that became important to me when I sobered up as well, just making sure that I was around the right people. But fast forwarding a little bit from there. Wild. I mean, so, yeah, that really did start the ball rolling. Yeah. 100%. I mean, you can see it from the zoom out. Yeah. So I uh, fast forwarding now, we're getting ready. We had a destination wedding plan for um, me and my then fiance. We were going to Jamaica to get married. And so we we go to Jamaica. First time either of us leave the country, we get our passports. We're having we're having fun out in Jamaica. And the night before our wedding. People, some of my own friends, some of her family, you know, they start coming up to me. Hey, Migs. You know, just trying not to get too drunk tomorrow. Just trying not to do this. Try not to do that. And I'm like, shit, this is this is an all inclusive resort. This is my wedding trip. And people are telling me not to get too drunk. So I then I made a promise to uh, her mom. Actually, I think it was the night before she uh, she kind of was the first time her mom was ever like really like stern and firm with me, but in a very, very respectful way and a way that I had to respect and appreciate right back. So she pretty much, you know, reminded me what I already knew. This is this is my daughter's big day. Uh, this is, you know, the first one of my daughters to get married. And, you know, please just like she never told me don't drink, don't get drunk. But I knew what she was saying when she was like, just make sure you're on your A game tomorrow. Mm. And uh, I knew what she was saying. So all the covert ways in which people in our lives tell us to stop yeah, wilding out. Yeah. yeah. Like right now, we're close enough where, you know, she she could probably just like be super, super blunt with me. And back then we were close. But, you know, as the relationship builds, I think that was like as much as she felt comfortable saying. So, yeah, I knew exactly what she was saying with that. And uh, I told her, I think I even laughed it off and said, don't worry, I won't be drunk until after we say I do. And uh, <laughs> You know, she she laughed it off, too. And, you know, it is what it is. And that's how that conversation parted ways. So I stuck to my part on that. And I didn't drink leading up to the wedding other than like a couple beers to kind of, you know, keep me easy. And, you know, I was smoking weed because we were in Jamaica and doing my thing there. And but as soon as we said I do, you know, and, and beautiful, because I know you're a sucker for this love stuff. So I'll, I'll paint a little picture for you. So we're on a gazebo right over the beach in Jamaica mm. at sunset with 20 plus of our closest friends and family absolutely amazing everything was absolutely perfect my wife absolute dynamite in her wedding dress everything was perfect um but as soon as we said i do and when i say as soon as so everything with the package that we had had um things included with it including like our specialty wedding cocktails and so as soon as we said i do they bring over two cocktails for her and i she already doesn't drink so she is like, no, I'm good. Wait, 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 wait. Take us back. Mallory don't drink? Nope. Like she's sober? She just doesn't drink. 
It's just not her thing. Oh my god! Oh my god! She did a lot like of partying in high school. She did a lot of partying in high school, and she was just over it. So she just doesn't at like she didn't even have a glass of wine or whatever. How some people no do. in the in the now a total of probably like eight or nine years we've been together. I had maybe seen her consume like just a sip here and there. Like when I would do yeah. it, like a craft beer and I'd be like, oh, this is really good. It Try tastes this. like this. She would take like a sip. And that was that. <sighs> that's where it would stop. Like I've never bad. even seen her drink. Matching you up drink. with someone. Yeah. Matching you up with someone who doesn't drink, who doesn't have the brain wiring. Like we have that's so wild. OK, so sorry. So sorry, she sorry, turned sorry. all good. So she turns away that drink and immediately before the person could even turn around, I'm like, no, I'll take it. And within like a minute of actually being legally married, I slammed her drink and then I was just slow sipping mine. And within like two minutes, they were both gone. And I think by like by time the cocktail hour was even op- over before the reception even started, I was probably already drunk and just like completely black out the rest of the night. Uh, didn't even get to, you know, have that that wedding night that people should because I was I was blacked out already. And, you know, just un- unfair to her as well, really, is what mm. it really comes down to. So. She's babysitting on on wedding night already. And also, unfortunately, two of the 10 days we were in Jamaica, that probably five hour window of like when I woke up on our wedding day at like 10 or 11 a.m. up until like 5 p.m. is when we said I do. So till like 501 p.m. that like five, six, seven hours, whatever that was, that was probably the only time I wasn't drunk the entire 10 days we were out there. I'm talking from like the minute I woke up to the minute I went to sleep. And I would justify that by we're at an all inclusive resort. Got to get my money's worth. We're in Jamaica. We're this, we're that. Right. And it was always justification. So uh, coming home. And like, this is what I'm hearing. You're with a woman that you love. You're with your family members who love you. Like, it's not even like you're in a beautiful place. Like, like what, you know, it, I feel like this is just where the disease starts to come up. Right. This idea of like, For sure. how this could is, you possibly this- want more? And you, you, you know, you said it, this is really identifiable, but you found a way to just dig deep, you know, a hundred percent. And this is definitely where it was a hundred percent at its worst. No doubt about that. So we get to now, um, we come home and two months later, so we got married May 13th, 2017. So we come home two months later, we're immediately trying to have a child now. We're immediately, mm, right. we're, we're working on that. And so July 10th of 2017, uh, home run derby night, big baseball fan. I'm drinking with some <laughs> friends and, you know, just another excuse to get drunk. So we come, we come back to my apartment. We're watching the first part at a local club, at a local private club. And we come back to my apartment and I realize that I have no more beer. So I say to the three of them, I said, I'm going to go grab some beer. Oh, uh, no, nah, we're good. We're done drinking for the night anyway. One one guy, I think, was like working overnight at the time. They were just they were all just done drinking. So uh, I tell I tell them, well, like, you know, I'm not done drinking. I'm going I'm running to the bar down the street and I live on Fourth Ave. This uh, little six pack shop is on 12th Ave. So it's eight blocks away. It's not even a mile. Uh, so I go I go up there. I go grab the six pack and it's raining out. It's pouring. So as soon as I pull out of the parking lot, I'm coming through an intersection and I don't know when it happened, but I have a car right in front of me. 
and I hit the car. I T-boned this car in the middle of an intersection. Now, uh, I get out the car because I'm completely okay, even though the car is totaled. Both of our cars like went opposite ways. We both missed the tree by inches, this big-ass tree on the curb. So both of our cars miss it, but I hit her doing – I was doing the speed limit, so I was probably doing a good 30 miles an hour. Uh, and I hit her, I get out, I immediately go up to her window of her car and I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? And she's just looking at me. I don't know what happened. What happened? What happened? Um, I could see in her eyes that she wasn't okay. Like physically she was okay, but I could tell that she wasn't all there. So I, I immediately call my two. So my best men from the wedding. Uh, and I call them my best men because my wife had one uh, maid of honor and then both of them walked her down the aisle together. So they were my best men. So they were two of the three people at my apartment. Mallory was sleeping. She worked overnight. She was sleeping in that apartment at the same exact time. So I called them. I said, yo, wake up Mallory and tell her to come down here when she can. But one of you come down here even sooner. I'm about to go to jail. So I had already had a DUI in the state of Pennsylvania. Ten, if you're, if a DUI is less than ten years apart, it's now a second DUI. I already know right. enough people that got their second DUI that I know that immediately you're going to jail. And even if you make bail that night, you're going to jail that night, and you're doing seven days in county jail, twenty-three days in work release, uh, sixty days on house arrest, followed by five more years of probation. Now, those are all the terms. If nobody's hurt. If, if nobody's suing you for anything extra, that's like, just like what happens if you just get your second DUI. So I know at the bare minimum, even if this lady isn't hurt, even if there's none of this, all that I'm going to jail, I'm at least doing that. I know I'm at least going to jail that night. So I call, I call them, they come over and the police took forever to respond to the scene. So they, they come, they're actually there first cop shows up. And eventually, I want to say like 15, 20 minutes after the accident, a cop finally shows up and uh, I'm sitting on the side of the curb. And honestly, I'm just in tears. I'm crying because I'm thinking about shit. I'm going to jail. I've been married for two months. We're trying to have a kid and I'm going to jail. So the cop comes up to me eventually and he's like, why are you so worked up? Why are you so upset? Don't you see that? And he points to the stop sign insinuating like this lady's the one that ran the stop sign you know, you did nothing wrong. So immediately, as soon as he does that, like I go into like cocky mode, like, Oh, he must not know that I'm drunk. He must not know that I'm this, that I'm that. And so he, I, I start, Oh, well, you're going to get her insurance information. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. Right. And this time Mallory was pulling up and she's walking over towards me. And she gets next to me just in time to see him and hear him get like this close to my face, like damn near nose to nose. And he's like, I can smell your breath. If you think I'm stupid, try again. If I were you, I would get in your wife's car and just call me tomorrow. And he withholds all of the information you normally get from like a traffic accident and all this and all that. So pretty much I would have to call him the next morning. And when I call him the next, my by the way, Mallory like turned into the incredible hawk because she knows me. She knows I'll keep well, I'm not drunk. I'm not this. I'm not that. She knew I would have tried to whatever. So she immediately saw an opportunity in which I'm not going to jail. 
And so she like yanked me in her car so fucking quick. It was unbelievable. Like how strong she was that night. (laughs) It was like mom lifts car off of child strong. (laughs) So She gets me back home. I call the cop the next morning and he pretty much tells me like, you know, you could have hurt someone, you know, there, this could have been a lot worse. You need to pretty much like, for lack of a better word, you need to get your life together. Now I will still stick by this to this day. And, you know, I genuinely believe that the only reason I didn't get a DUI that night is because I believe that the other woman, the other driver of the car was, I a hundred percent know she was older than me. She was an elderly woman that had to have been at least in her fifties, if not older. I genuinely believe that she was intoxicated, if not on alcohol. I mean, it looked more like kind of like a, that like pill, like loopy yeah. high, but yeah, that's, that's not a hundred percent for yeah. me to say, but she definitely didn't look sober. We'll put it that way. She didn't look coherent. So I genuinely believe that he didn't want to give both of us DUIs because I also know that at that point in my life too, where I was and with me being drunk, I already had that in my mind that she was also fucked up. So I, I know that if, if he would have tried to bring me down, especially when I knew that I wasn't wrong in the traffic accident, I was bringing her down with me. And it was going to be like, you're not arresting me. You're not giving me a field sobriety test without giving her one. This and all, like I wasn't going down without a fight. That was already in my mind, even though I never said it out loud, uh, as shitty as that is. So I believe that he didn't want to give both of us a DUI or at least test us both, whatever the case may be. You know, maybe he wanted to cut us a break because he saw two total cars. They were both nice cars. You know, I was my car was like a $30,000 car. Hers was probably close to that. So, you know, there was a lot of damage in the middle of the road. Nobody was physically hurt at that point. So uh, I dodge a bullet there. And now I'm working at a restaurant. This is like my second day on my job too, at a new restaurant in which I'm managing. So I have to call them and tell them like, Hey, look, this happened to my car, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I miss a couple of days of work. I get in the rental. I start going back to work. And I find out just a couple, like two months later, I find out that Mallory's pregnant. So looking back, had I went to jail that night, uh, depending on if you 100% believe the conception date within a few days, give or take, we either A, Bronx isn't here, or B, oh my she's, God. Dealing, she's dealing with pregnancy with me in jail. So it's one way or the other, whichever way you want to look at it. Either way, not a great situation for either of us. So going back to now, I'm working this new job in which I'm managing this restaurant and I, uh, I'm like launching a craft beer program for them. So I'm justifying and finding ways to be able to pretty much even drink every night there before I go home. I'm trying to figure out how much I can drink where I'm not drunk driving home, uh, but I'm definitely over the limit. I'm very aware of this. And, you know, I even got pulled over a couple of times for different reasons, talked my way out of getting DUIs. I mean, there's so many times I should have got locked up for DUIs that I didn't. Oh, I get that. Yeah. It's so, so bad. Uh, So we are now, uh, I, I know that um, I have an issue now. It is like the winter time of 2017. And I know I have a problem because in that time frame too, I driven the rental car home, which is one of the times I should have got a DUI. I made a left turn on a no left turn, uh, ran a stop sign, had a cop behind me the entire time. I pulled into the parking lot of my complex. And I'm, I also believe that the only reason I didn't get a DUI that night is because I ended up getting in the parking spot before he could throw on his lights. And I don't know the exact law, but I'm pretty sure at that point, if he hadn't already pulled me over, I don't think he could pursue me any further on private property. I could oh, yeah. be wrong. 
I could be I, wrong, but I'm genuinely. I don't know what those rules are, but like I've made up so many of those rules, right? Like, like if I if I take the keys, if the, if the car's off, then like you can't you can't give me a DUI, right? Like if I'm pulled over and I turn off the car, then there's no DUI. Like if I'm if I'm in a parking spot, then there's no, like I've like rolled up to like people's houses and been like, I live here, and like yeah. pull up. Well, luckily like, it was actually. <laughs> Luckily, it was actually my apartment. Um, so I don't know if he either couldn't pull me over or he was just happy to see that my stupid ass. Yeah, that you home. got home. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What, because I'm sure he probably if he ran my plate, he also knew that was actually my address and that I wasn't pulling one of those. So whatever the case may be, he like as I parked too, he like stopped right where he got to pull into my parking lot. And he just like stopped. I could see him staring at me. And then he stopped there for probably a good 30 seconds to a minute before driving away. Um, so I can only imagine what was going through his head. It's probably waiting to see if I was actually getting out my car, what I was doing, right, whatever, right, right. whatever the case may be. So, you know, I, all of these moments started clicking towards me and I was insanity, like, just total insanity. I knew that I knew that like, this is the point where I was starting to say to myself, like, shit, dude, you got a drinking problem. Um, I'm mm-hmm. starting to say to myself, like you might be an alcoholic. I remember this one traffic, like I would drive home, you know, buzzed every night, making shitty decisions. And there was this one traffic light that always took forever to turn green. And it was like three blocks away from my house. And I always remember being at that light. And for some reason, I would always catch it red. And I would always justify to myself before I made this last turn to pretty much go home. I would always tell myself, all right, we'll start doing better tomorrow. We'll start doing better tomorrow. And I would always tell myself that. And, you know, just for a while, I wasn't. So Mm. I knew I knew that I needed to switch up some things in my life. I wasn't hundred percent sure that I was going to be that I, that I was going to sober up yet, but I knew I needed to make some changes. Um, I had an unhealthy work relationship with um, my boss. We were just like, we kind of went at it too many times. And so I justified that also as a reason to leave the job, which I needed to get out of there for mental health reasons. But I also knew if I was even going to think about being done drinking, that I couldn't continue working there. So I leave that job. Um, the, the guy I actually work for now at his restaurant, his family also owns an Italian restaurant. And so I love their family. And I had kind of been talking to him, him being the owner of a restaurant and also being a friend of mine when I would come and I would drink a few beers at, at his restaurant on my way home from work. Sometimes I would vent to him, Oh, you know, this guy said this and said that. And, you know, And he's like, you know, if you ever want to get out of there, let me know if you want a place that's like better for your mental health. Let me know. Uh, You can go work with my parents up until we have an opening here and then we can try and bring you over here. And, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do, you know, I got you because he was being a friend at the time. So eventually I took him up on that offer and I was like, I came to his restaurant one day and I said, look, before I go get my two weeks tomorrow, can I still is this offer still on the table? He made the call confirmed. So I go, I put in the two weeks notice. I go over to this other restaurant. I come back out of management, back down in the serving. I'm just chilling. I'm enjoying my time. And this is February of 2018. So now May of 2018 is when Bronx is born. And so he's born and I'm drinking. He, he had some complications at, at birth. I wouldn't quite say life or death, but he had some complications in which he had to be in the hospital longer than we expected. So when I'm going home to, you know, check on things at home and this and that, really, I'm drinking. Uh, when people are coming to visit him in the hospital and come see how everything is, he's, uh, 
they're they're bringing you know weed and they're bringing beer and this and that i'm going out to the parking lot and i'm smoking i'm drinking in the hospital and you know the nurse even said one time a buddy of mine brought a six-pack and the nurse goes you know you can't drink in the hospital right and i said of course not i'm taking this home what do i look like an alcoholic like of course i'm taking this home (laughs) and meanwhile you know a little bit after she left i was drinking in the bathroom now keep in mind this is i wasn't one of those i'm hiding my drinking from people this is probably the only time I ever drank in a bathroom in my life. And it wasn't because I was hiding from my family. It was only because I was hiding it from the nurses because I didn't want to embarrass my wife and my mother and her mother who were spending so much time there helping out with everything. I didn't want to embarrass them. It was more for them than for myself that I was drinking right. in the bathroom. Um, to just so the nurses didn't find out. That was honestly the only reason everyone else knew exactly what I was doing. So I was, I would, I would drink in the bathroom. So that way I wouldn't have to go home. So that way I was justifying it, but at least I'm still here with my kid. I'm this, I'm that. And, uh, you know, now he comes home from work or I'm sorry, he comes home from hospital. I go back to work on, so he's born on May 14th. Our first anniversary, really quick, funny story. So our first, I was like, he was born right after you guys' anniversary. So May 13th, we get married. Her water breaks on our anniversary, on our first anniversary, her water breaks, which is also ironically Mother's Day. Oh, my God. So we spend the entire day in the hospital and uh, he ends up being born on May 14th, 2018. So our anniversary and his birthday are one day apart. So if you ever hear me trying to figure out like his birthday anniversary is because I'm always trying to remember which one of those is which. I know they're the 13th and 14th and sometimes I just mix them up. Um, so he, uh, he's born on May 14th and then he comes home from the hospital on May, we'll say like 20th, 21st, something like that. He was in the hospital for like a week on May 29th. I go back to work on May 30th. I go back to work and my first night back to work, they, uh, I pull one of my normal moves that I always pull working in the restaurant, you know, we're busy, you know, I'll be home later, this and that. And normally that's always something I say because a restaurant is such a volume-based industry that I could say that I'm still at work and busy when really I'm at another bar drinking and getting drunk. And it is what it is. And she's not dumb. She knew what I was doing, but she never called me out on it until this day. So I come home on May 30th and this is 2018. And I walk in and, you know, our son is 16 days old. And she says, you know, feed him. I'm going to lay down. And I said, I'm really, really tired. I just got done working. And she pretty much said, tough shit. Feed your son. I'm going to lay down. And uh, I'm holding him. Uh, So I'm holding him and I'm looking into his eyes. And I'm like, everything started coming forward. I was like. You know, you said you want to be better than your dad. You know better than your dad at this point. You're doing all of the same stuff. You're you're just as bad. You're drinking every night at this point till blackout. You have twins that want nothing to do with you in, in their life. And are you really going to do this again? Are you really going to continue doing this all over again? And I looked at him and I said, I promise Bronx, I'm going to be better for you. I promise. I promise. And uh, I, I, he was the first person I ever told that I'm an alcoholic, that I had a drinking problem. 
the first because I knew he couldn't snitch on me. He was 16 days old. <laughs> I knew he couldn't go tell anybody. And while I figured stuff out, I knew that I pretty much wouldn't get ratted on. So that was a Wednesday. <laughs> on Thursday, May 31st, I woke up sober. I went to work and didn't drink. All was good. By Friday, I go to work. Another Friday in the restaurant industry, seeing people drunk. It started sucking. I'm also starting to physically feel the shit. You haven't had a drink in two days. And, you know, this is at this point, it's probably been years since I went two days without drinking. Right. So I was I was actually at the point of officially drinking every night, not all day, every day, but at least every night until blackout. Uh, so I am starting to physically feel un, un okay. I'm seeing people drunk. It's making me uncomfortable. I don't even drink the beer that I'm supposed to get at the end of my shift. I just go home. Saturday, same thing, but worse. Sunday morning, I wake up, I go to church. And on Sunday morning, at, it's the first time I've been in church for anything other than a baptism or um, a baby shower. And I can't even remember how long. So I go there. The pastor at the end of the service says, you know, if you're new to this church, come up, talk to us, blah, blah, blah. He then tells me about a night service that they're having. They're launching a new campus. They're doing this once a month night service while they get the campus launched. And it happens to be that night. So we go to, I go to that service again. And at the end of that service, when he's doing worship, he then says, you know, a lot of people out here are struggling alcohol, uh, drugs, uh, you know, marital issues, depression, whatever the case may be, just know you're not alone. You're loved. God is here for you. All that stuff. And I, I ducked out of there a couple minutes early. I got in my car and I looked up. Um, it was the first time I ever even Googled AA meetings around me. Now, keep in mind, I had not told anybody I was done drinking. My wife, even Mallory, even made a comment like some point Saturday night. Like, how comes you're you still have the same amount of beers in the fridge? And uh, I'm just I'm tired. I was drinking at the bar. I drank at work, whatever I said to make her think that like because I couldn't tell her I just didn't drink. That wouldn't be normal. So I just told her, you know, I drank somewhere else or whatever. I said, first time I ever lied about drinking when I didn't drink. That's so oh, wild. Yeah. I yeah. think that's such, that's like, that's so <laughs> wild to me. So uh, I lied to my wife about not drinking. That's yeah. <laughs> so I go, I go to this AA meeting and I'm listening to people share and I'm hearing all this and all that. And they, they could probably tell I was the newcomer in the room. Cause I look like a deer in headlights and Eventually they like, I just raised my hand when I felt it was my turn towards the end of the meeting. And it was the first time I said out loud, uh, my name is Miguel and I think I'm an alcoholic. And you know, I said, I'm a hundred, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but this is, this is what's going on in my life. And, you know, they tell you knowing what I know now, they ask us not to share for more than four or five minutes. Um, but I probably went on for like 10 minutes no one was going to, no one was going to interrupt me at that. that point. No one was going to interrupt the guy who told them that they, that he hadn't had a drink in three days because who wants to, yeah, who wants to scare that person out of the meeting? So <sighs> thankfully they didn't. And, uh, you know, I pretty much shared my life story in a 10 minute version and they, uh, got nothing but hugs and phone numbers at the end. And one thing that a guy said to me that really stuck with me ever since is, you know, regardless of what happened with your twins, Regardless of anything you've done in life, right now is your chance for your youngest son to never see you drunk. 
if you stay on this path, this is your chance for Bronx to never see you drunk. And that is one thing that has stuck with me ever since. Thank God. And, you know, that Wednesday night that I came home was the last time I ever drank. And when I woke up May 31st, 2018, to this day, it's been uh, 40, 41 months without drinking to this day. May 31st, 2018. Uh, that's just so beautiful. That's that that I'm like just 100% chills. I'm one big goosebump right now. Oh, thank you so one, much. <laughs> one thing I do want to get out there too, because I've, I've forgotten to mention this in several other podcast interviews that I've done. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm giving, giving the respect and the love and the credit where it is due. So my father who active alcohol addiction, this and that, when he went down to Florida, he would claim that he was sober. I never believed him because so many times in my life, he told me he was sober. I never believed him. It wasn't until I actually sobered up and him and I had a really, really bad falling out shortly, shortly before I sobered up because he didn't make it to Jamaica for my wedding. And we had a terrible falling out, terrible falling out. Yeah. I was like, oh, you're a piece of shit. You know, why don't you keep drinking and this and that and blah, blah, blah. There's no way you're sober. And he said something when we got off that argument and I called him every word in the book. And he said something. He's like, son, why don't you just go have another drink? And he said that to me. And I was like, shit, I was still drinking at the time. And I was like, man, he just used my lineup. And so I built even more resentment for that. For that. I don't think I spoke oh to God. him. I didn't speak to him for months. So like I said, oh I, had, I had a great relationship with my stepmom. So I called her shortly after I sobered up and I told her what I did. Um, or I should say she reached out to me to see how I was doing because I posted on Facebook, like, you know, I'm now sober four days after I went to that AA meeting, I went public with it right away. I was like, I've been sober for four or five days. You know, I'm trying on this journey, blah, blah, blah. We'll see what happens. And so she reached out to me to ask me how I was doing. And I talked to her and I was like, you know, however it came up eventually I was like, you know, is my dad actually sober? Like I haven't talked to him in months. We had this huge falling out. Is he actually sober? And she's like, Miguel, your dad is still an asshole, but he hasn't had a drink in however many years she said. And I was like, is this for real? And she's like, yeah, he really hasn't had a drink or done drugs in this many years. So I called him. We finally, we hashed it out. And fast forwarding a little bit, he came up uh, probably September, September 30th, Sep Sep like late September of 2018. He came up and from Florida, we went to an AA meeting together uh. and it was, I got my four month coin in front of him. And I think he had like 12 years at the time. That was the first time ever going back to my childhood. Then my adult years, because even even when he said he was sober and I didn't believe him when he would come up, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't drink around me. So I wasn't 100 percent sure that he was uh, sober. I just knew he wasn't drinking around me. I thought he might have been putting on a facade. I, I wasn't sure I believed it. But um, anyway, so. This is the first time when we went to that meeting and when we went out to lunch that day, that was the first time myself and my dad were ever in the same room together ever. And we were both sober. 
I cannot like my entire life. And so, you know, as much, as much shit and bad things I said in the beginning, I want to make sure that I also clarify that he got his life together, became a better human being, became a better father. And he found all of that through sobriety as well. And so that is very important to me to, you know, as just many bad things as, as I say, I want to say all the good things And him and I right now have a relationship that is better than it has ever been. He's been up here to see his grandson a couple of times. Um, we talk every so often, not as often as we should. We don't have the greatest relationship, but there is no doubt that it's better than it's ever been. And it's, you know, I'll take it. Like I heard someone say about their bad relationship with their father. I wouldn't want more and I wouldn't want less. I'll take exactly what we got, especially considering where we came from. That's such an important distinction, right? To like meet people where they're at and to kind of, uh, measure that progress in a way that, uh, can feel manageable, you know, right. With certain levels of boundaries and understanding where you come from, uh, and that it doesn't have to be picture perfect, but it is something that two people can live with and still feel good about, you know, those, those kind of relationships that we would, you know, in our drinking and drugging, just, you know, totally cut out or, you know, keep the drama going sort of this middle ground. You know, I, I, I see manageability, right. And on all aspects of it. I think that's so beautiful between you and your dad, this idea that, you know, had either of you really just not gotten sober, that this middle, this like, you know, sweet spot of like understanding each other, but maybe not being best friends is actually a really good place for both of you. Absolutely. And so I'll go ahead. So, no, I just, so I just want to like, keep spinning this, you know, like, you know, I, I, we're, we're sober. You got, you got Bronx, you and Mallory, you know, Mallory is sort of noticing that you're getting sober. You're going to AA meetings. I, I, we can talk more about that, but I want to know when the fitness stuff comes in. Cause so far you done told your whole story. You didn't mention one athletic thing about you except for maybe pool. So <laughs> I kind of want to know. So this is actually, this is exactly where, this is exactly where running comes in. Um, yes. Going to meetings. You know, they told me if you go to a meeting, you're sober for an hour. And so, uh, I love numbers and I love increasing my odds. So I figured, all right, well, if I ride a bike to a meeting or if I run to a meeting <gasps> and do that, and if that takes me 30 minutes to get there and 30 minutes to get home, then I'm adding in an hour. So every meeting I go to, I'm really sober for two hours. So I would do that. And then I just, I quickly got obsessed with running and pretty much, you know, I, I did everything I was supposed to do 90 and 90. So you can imagine how many miles that I was getting in jogging and bike riding uh, I probably did like 190 realistically. So I was just, would doing you, is this like in the, so like you're in, and I know you're in Allentown or, or right. Allentown. I live in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And that's, you know, it's suburban, but also urban. Could you, I mean, I, I'm literally the logistics, you know, I live in New York city. So for me, it's real easy to justify walking places or running places. Cause you know, we don't have like big gaps of highway. Would you like, find yourself, I don't know, uh, yeah, I, biking on the highway or like running weird no, places so or I was like two had, meetings. I had one meeting. I, I had a few meetings I would go to throughout the week, um, based off different times. There was a lot of, a lot of access to different meetings. I had one meeting that I could go to that was at noon every single day, like seven mm -hmm. days a week, uh, or six days a week, every day, except Saturday, this meeting was at noon and, uh, it was walking distance from my apartment. Ah, like, uh, okay. So I would walk there, um, but I would find other meetings that were, you know, uh, I would try and find a meeting that was maybe a mile and a half away or two yeah. miles away, and I would run to that one. 
or I'd find a meeting that was 10, 10 miles away and I would ride my bike to that one. And yeah, so that's yeah, how yeah. I would, that's how I would do that stuff. And you know, that's, that's also how I would squeeze in like sometimes like two meetings a day. I would go to like a 9am meeting in which I rode my bike to, then I would go to the gym, uh, go home, eat breakfast, spend a little bit of time with my son and then go to a noon meeting and, you know, do that right away. And so also too, in the beginning, the first two months, this was really, really easy because with my wife's schedule, uh, with her being on maternity leave, she was home. So I could work mm. this out. I could, I could wake up at like 5 a.m. It worked out for both of us because I could wake up and do like the 5 a.m. bottle feeding, then go start all this stuff. And then she wouldn't, I could lay him back down and start going to do my thing. And she wouldn't have to wake up till like 9 a.m. So it would, it would work out for both of us. So pretty much I'd be up from like 5 a.m. And it wasn't until like 1 p.m. that I could even decompress and realize I just made it eight hours of my day without drinking. And, right. you know, and yeah. then busy, busy, busy. Yeah. yeah. It just, I was just trying to stay busy in any way I could. So I was just running, running, going to the gym, running, going to the gym, biking. And then more and more running became like my, my absolute love, my passion, my obsession, my new addiction, whatever, everything you want to call it. So I, I met a friend when I was just a few days sober, uh, probably two weeks in, I met a guy who just had a little bit more sobriety than me at the time. And his brother was a runner. His brother's not in recovery, but his brother's a runner and a really good person. So the first person I mentioned that I met in the rooms, I would go to the gym, I would lift with him. And then I would then go talk running with his brother. And so I would pretty much wrap myself around those two. I would run this like little 5k training plan by his brother. I was going to the treadmill every day. And you know, I was just trying to get my first race in. And, uh, and what did this do for your mental health? I mean, like, it's just, it seems so smooth, this transition. You're like, I mean, not that you didn't have this um, amazing awakening, but suddenly you were just now suddenly doing different things. I Can guess you my, speak a little bit more on that? My mental health was okay because I was not leaving myself any free time whatsoever. Zero yeah. free time. So <laughs> there was no time to even process or think about anything. It was, it was wake up, like I said, take care of him, run, bike ride, meeting, gym, run, meeting, gym, run, workout, workout at home with him next to me, post on Facebook that I'm another day sober, do some push-ups, uh, just whatever the case may be. And I would keep posting stuff on Facebook. And my wife said something to me one day too. And this actually goes back to, she like doubled down on this when I started the staying fit ODAP page, like the night I, I created it. And I told her I created the staying fit ODAP page. She goes, you know, the more shit you say out loud to people about you being sober is making it very, very hard for you. If you decide to go back out and she's like, I don't want you to go back out and drink again. However, and she never even hit me with one of those. If you go back out, if you relapse, I'm leaving none of that stuff. Uh, because she didn't even ask me to sober up in the first place. And so she wasn't saying it from that point, but she was like, you know, if you go back out and you drink again, everyone's going to look at you differently. Everyone's going to look at you funny. You're now the guy who fucked up. You're the guy who failed. You're, you're this, you're that. So just be careful how many people you tell if you're not willing to make this a lifelong decision. And I said to her, I said, well, I guess I'm all in. Then again, another poker term, I would, you know, it is what it is. Like, and this is more accountability because that's exactly what I can't do now. I can't just go tell like you can't you can't create a staying fit ODAT page and you can't do a podcast and you can't do this and you can't do that. And then look, look down the road later and be like, 
I'm just kidding. I'm not an alcoholic. Like, I'm just kidding. I'm going to have a few beers. I can be responsible. Like, you can't do all of this and and then go back and say that you weren't serious about it. So it's it's also been huge for me to help create accountability. So I was just, I was doubled in on all of that, everything I could do, all of the time I could consume, everything that I had in me. And I was running uh, a funny story. I was running my first 5K ever. And I'm running with a good friend of mine, the, the guy I spoke of, John. And this dude is a, an, a like a beast runner. Like he can win a 5K. So we show up to the start line and uh, I come out the gate and, you know, I said, oh, looking at the results from last year, if I run like a sub 20 minute 5K, I'll finish in third place in my age group. And he never told me like, dude, that's a very ambitious goal for your first 5K. Do you realize how tough that is? Do you this, yeah. do that? And he's like, oh, cool. I don't know if he didn't realize, like maybe he thought I was training harder than I was or this, that, because we never did a training run together. But uh, he's like, yeah, cool. So we go and I hang with the lead pack in my first 5K. Now runners, you'll appreciate this. I had never in my life, in my entire life, at least my adult life, I don't remember school, but I had never in my adult life ran a sub seven and a half minute mile ever, ever. I'm not even <laughs> sure if I ever ran a sub eight minute mile and I'm running not in your guys. training at all. Yeah. You're I'm running like, with the this. lead pack mm -hmm. for the first half mile of the race. And for like the first quarter mile of the race, I was like, oh, this is easy. I'm hanging with these guys. I'm like, I'm doing like the stuff I saw on TV. I'm like tucked in behind guys. And I'm like, oh, cool. This is easy. All I got to do is hang with these guys. In my mind, all I got to do is just run with these guys. And I'm good. A half mile into that race, I blew up. Everything Damn. hurt. It, it splints, crazy. My legs, everything. I was done. I, I ran my first mile in... 715 and I ran the 5k in like 25 minutes. Yeah, like, you slowed like it was down like there, it was like 715, then like nine minute, then like 10 minute. It might have even been like a 27 or 28 minute 5k, actually. Now that I think about it, but I blew up so bad, so bad. And but I it made me so hungry. And like I kept running, I kept training, and I was like, I can I want to do this, I want to do that. Um fast forward through that part for a few months is when my my one of my best friends little brother he was one of my best men in the wedding eddie he's the one that was like let's go to la for the la marathon he got me on board i started training for that and eight weeks into that training plan i break my ankle which is exactly where we started this podcast interview in the first place and that's pretty much that sums up the first like 31 32 and a half years of my life pretty much in the last <laughs> in the last two two plus hours well, I, I, I mean, there is so much there and there's just so much willpower and willfulness, which can both be positive and negative in all of this journey. If I could just highlight for a couple of people, this, this thing about starting to, you know, get busy in a positive way. I'm curious about some takeaways. If I can ask them real quick before we fully wrap up Go for it. when you, when you dove into AA, did you do all the suggestions? Like get a sponsor, every single and, one of them, yeah. every single one. Cause I took every suggestion. I figured, yeah. although I never said I was an alcoholic out loud to anybody. And so I never did anything that people said before i never tried i never failed so you know i i couldn't 100 use the whole it didn't work my way so i'm gonna do it your way like some people say but 
at the same time, I knew that those thoughts had been running through my head. I negotiated with myself at that traffic light so many times and nothing had ever clicked. I love for that me. moment. And I want to be sober so bad, especially since a guy told me it was a chance for Bronx to never see me drunk, that I was going to give everything. I have a very addictive personality when I'm into something, I'm into something. So if you tell me do this, I'm doing it. I did everything they told me to do. I got a sponsor. I started working steps. I uh, did 90 and 90. Like I said, I probably did like a hundred, somewhere between hundred and 110 meetings in my first 90 days. <laughs> Me too. Um, I would go to two meetings a day sometimes. And if, if, if life happened and I missed a day with a meeting um, completely, I would go to like three the next day. I think I went I to, so as hear many, that. I think I went to as many as like, I think I did four meetings in one day, one time, like a 6am, a 9am, a noon, and like a dinner time meeting all in one day. Um, because if I, if I needed it, I needed it. Um, and then, and I then just, how did that, how did that translate into training? Like, you know, do you take the training suggestions? Like when you started to like, what was the first, you know, you started running from the suggestion of your friend, but like, you know, a lot of people, I mean, in recovery or otherwise, they're like how to get started is their biggest question for you. What was it that made you, you know, like how to get started? How did you literally get started running? Like, did you buy running shoes? Did so you buy I running just wanted shorts? to be, it all started that I wanted to just be healthier. And, uh, I just, I figured, you know, I'm already going to start losing weight because I'm not drinking. And so if I start adding in some fitness stuff, I had no idea I wanted to be a runner, but if I just add in some fitness stuff, I'll just overall be healthier. Again, I'll live longer for, for my family and whatnot. So I just, I was just going to the gym and I was using old ass beat shoes and just going to the gym, working out, running here and there running just kind of like took over little by little, but it was like, I think I probably liked bike riding more in the beginning. Um, I loved working out and going to the gym and just spending like hours there and doing a lot of low weight, high rep stuff and just doing whatever I could and just trying to get my cardio going um, and just trying also, to build on I, that. I love the suggestion of make, I mean, it, it's translates so easily in New York, but like the suggestion of having your commute be coupled with your fitness time, you know, like you commuting to these meetings, these, I, how did, you know, how to get to the meetings running there or walking there or biking there. That's such a solid suggestion of being, of trying to marry these two worlds, get your ass to a meeting, how you going to get there. You're going, you're going to move your body to get there. Like that sure. is so what a cool suggestion. I think for everybody, on, on all different walks of life, whether you have a strong recovery game, but you're working on your health stuff or you got that health stuff and you need to work on that recovery game. I mean, I think those two things go hand in hand. Absolutely. And so I just, I, I kind of, I just, I warped into that so hard, so hard. And then it, it was like little by little running became so much to me when I ran that 5k in November, the one that I spoke of that I blew up that's when I started realizing that a lot of the stuff that I was learning in the rooms were now going to be able to apply to my running, uh, you know, one day at a time specifically, it was like, man, I can't just come out the gate and run my first 5k and finish in third place. And I had, hey. to, I, cause I was upset for a while and I had to learn, <laughs> I had to learn. And then my wife was like, dude, you never, you fucking six months ago, you were drunk, passed out on the sofa. Like, that's so real. Like, come on, like get over yourself you know, check your ego at the door and just work a little bit harder. Stop bitching about it. Work a little bit harder. And I was like, all right, cool. So, you know, then I get into the training plan. And then as soon as I heard the word marathon immediately, just like a lot of people that run, uh, 
it immediately became Boston, Boston, the Boston mm. marathon. It's the word, like you think of the word marathon, you think of Boston, even if you're not right, a right, runner. Right, right, right. And it's like one of those things too. Like, even if I run into a stranger on the street, they find out I'm a runner and it's like, you know, every runner is Boston. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, but, and, and then you try and explain to someone, well, you got to qualify for Boston. Oh, well, how much does it cost? No, you have to qualify based off of a time, based off of your age group, based off of your gender, this and that, or you have to raise a fuck ton of money or have a job that's a sponsor and get like a lottery ticket. But either way, it is not easy to get into Boston. You got to bust right, your right, right, ass. Right. If you don't want to make a life decision with money, you have to bust your ass if you want to do it the old fashioned way by, by training. So as soon as I said I was going to run to LA immediately, because my whole mentality is zero to hundred addictive personality, use my superpowers, my evil powers for good. It immediately became, all right, cool. If you're going to make me run the LA marathon, then one day I'm going to qualify for the Boston marathon. And so I did that marathon or I didn't do that marathon, but as soon as I was cleared for running again, I then registered for my next marathon, which, uh, COVID was happening. So I found a marathon that was going to happen in October and I did like a run walk marathon because I wanted to enjoy it. And yes, I, I wanted enjoy to be able to take it. pictures and videos. And I was posting live videos on the Facebook group the entire time. Um, and I just like I, I got so hyped into it. And that's that moment right there in October when I ran that marathon. That's when I knew for sure. I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Whatever it takes, I will get there. Uh a month later, I hired a run coach who was also in recovery. Shout out Alicia Jenkins with Team Run Run. Hey, Alicia Jenkins. Um, we yeah, love she, you. She loves all of your work, too. She speaks so highly of you. It's crazy. Oh, she's so cool. She's um, so cool. So I hired her. We brought her on right away. Started putting in that work. Um, two months later, and I'm going to plug the Stankfit ODAC group again here. So January of 2021 comes along now. And this is the one-year anniversary of Stankfit ODAC. We run like an unofficial race, which will be coming up again soon. And <gasps> the, the race, it was the first annual ODAT, OMAT is what I called it, one day at a time, one mile at a time. There was different length options in which you could do it virtual, submit your results. I sent out t-shirts as a part of swag, little like homemade medals that my mom made, um, even trophies or medals for people that finished in a certain place. However, I did, I can't exactly remember, um, but we did like a registration fee and uh, raised a bunch of money that we uh, gave and are still giving to different uh, recovery related organizations and foundations and just trying to help out, you know, just be better people, give back to the people that all helped us get sober and get clean. So we did that. We raised um, after all the overhead, we raised $1,300. It was like 12, yeah. it was like high 1200. I just, I came out of pocket a little bit to just make an even 1300. Cause I love even numbers. So it was 1300 that we're giving away to different organizations. A few hundred of it has already been given away. Um, the rest is still trying to just give it to the right people, figure out the right way to do things. And, uh, you know, we have, we have t-shirts and hats and stuff that people can buy that I need to be better about, um, making available to people. Cause I'm just always so busy and I don't always let people know what is available. We love swag. Y'all yes, check out the swag. Everyone loves swag. So back to the running real quick. So I was, I then ran a, so my first marathon I ran in October, I ran a 446. Then I, I, that was with zero, zero official training, just doing my own thing. Um, I bring on Alicia. We train all winter long through 2021. I ran in March of 2021. I ran uh, another marathon and finished in 
officially it was a 401. My goal was a sub four. <laughs> officially it was That's a 401. So unofficially That's it was a dream. three. It was like a 358 or 359. Unofficially, the difference being uh, for my runners out there, they know how this goes. But a marathon is 26.2 miles. Um, but if you don't run perfect tangents on the course, a lot of times you'll tend to run a little bit longer. So I had to run a couple feet off course to stop at the uh, Porter potty to go to the bathroom, which took five minutes out of my time. Uh, Cause I had to, which by the way, runners uh, practice your uh, training gels and goose, which my coach told me to do, but I tried something oh, yeah. new on race day and no, uh, my, never. Uh, Miguel. To, to keep it as clean as possible. My digestive system didn't agree, agree with the way I did. I things. can't eat those. And those so things go right through me. Mm-hmm. We had, we had to, uh, we had to drop a deuce in the middle of the marathon and I had to <laughs> wait in line for the porter potty too. So that was like that overall between waiting in line and being in there. Uh, that was probably like five or six minutes of the race. This shit is real. Um, literally uh literally <laughs> so uh also like running off course a little bit hitting the tangents uh uh in a, the the wrong way so my marathon that i ran i did 26.4 miles so that's why my watch told me that i ran 26.2 miles in 359 but my official race finish time was a 401 so that's what counts so you that's know that's fire just, that is so I, just fire. Get, I mean I just get you gotta a lot hit that sub four. Yeah, for you sure. gotta hit that. So it feels so, you know, when you hit that sub four, then you just you really done. Now you've had the sub four. But I know I can do it. But I know I can do it. So 401 is not sub four, you know. For, yeah. So you're sure. the next one. It's the next one. <laughs> ah, so so I get hungrier. I, I train all summer long. I'm working on speed. I'm working on everything coaches tell me to do. I'm putting it all in. I'm following all her suggestions. I'm bringing my 5K time down. That first 5K I ran was 27. 28 minutes i get it down to like a 22 30 uh, hey, that's five good. minutes off of a 5k huge is a lot it's a lot it's a lot it's uh it's like a minute and a half per mile so uh i get that down to 22 30 i'm bringing my 10k times down i'm bringing my and probably running marathon. more consistent right you're not Way like you know consistent. that that Way and that 5k you're not going out hot it's like you know you're keeping your mile times the same so you know? one mistake i made is i went against coaches suggestions and um i was not taking complete rest days when i was supposed to um i would lie and say i was taking a rest day and i was really sneaking in a few miles or i was overtraining, and uh i caught a a, a bad uh, i don't want to say too bad but i called it a knee injury which you knew about um i caught yeah. that on my last run of june uh june so I missed all of July running. I get back in August. Uh, I get back in August. I keep grinding. And then uh, September, September race season comes along. I'm signed up for this marathon to run October 17th. I run a half marathon in September. I did fairly well. Uh, the knee injury is finally gone. It didn't bother me the entire half marathon. I get ready for this uh, marathon in October. And I'm training people. We're also running a couch to 5K that I teamed up with a local recovery community. And uh, we're training for a couch to 5K. And as we get to that point, I we're a few days out from the race. It's the Tuesday before the race, which is also 10 days before my marathon. And on that Tuesday, I'm doing a little, what was supposed to be a very easy six-mile training run. And I'm just cruising along. And I stepped on what I think was a walnut. I no. rolled my ankle and it immediately broke. The same ankle that I broke training for the LA marathon that God broke damn. eight weeks before the marathon. This time I break it 10 days before the marathon. 
I have to sideline. I'm nursing that as we speak. I just started phys. I'm two days into physical therapy as we speak. Um, I'm hoping this. I'm three weeks out from the injury itself. Uh, two days into physical therapy, hoping I could be back to at least light running about two or three weeks from now. And you know, I'm just I'm I'm focused. My goal was originally going to be to qualify for the Boston Marathon in a March race of 2022. Realistically, that's not going to happen now. Um, my new goal is to hopefully if everything goes well and I don't need surgery, which I'll find out in a few weeks, but if I don't need surgery and I can get back to running appropriately, then my new goal is to qualify in October of 2022, which would allow me to run the 2023 Boston marathon. If, if everything works out, but if not, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep grinding and I'm going to keep doing what I got to do because, you know, just like uh, my recovery, just like sobriety, just like I try and tell other people, you know, this shit is one day at a time. And uh, as long as you don't give up, then you're never out of the fight. And, you know, I try and tell people the same thing with like relapsing uh, or field research, as we like to call it. If you're going out there <laughs> and you make that mistake, then, uh, you know, you're, you're only out if you if you continue to not if you choose to not get back in the fight. And I'm getting back in this fight as soon as I can. I'm just going to come back harder, work on core, work on cross training, everything coach tells me to do to try and prevent more injuries going forward. And I'm going to come back hopefully stronger, faster, and better than I ever was. But I know one thing is for sure. I'm not fucking giving up. I'm not giving up. Do you remember when you told me the story about when you first rolled your ankle and you went out and you grabbed a six pack and you didn't drink it? Yep. And then this time when you rolled your ankle, what'd you do? Uh, first, this time I didn't walk around on it for 10 days. Right. Um, uh, because I knew that the marathon was only 10 days out. I knew it was no <laughs> bullshitting. Um, I was, I was hoping it was only sprained, but in my mind, I already knew my marathon wasn't happening. Cause even if it was sprained, I can't run a marathon 10 days later without doing permanent damage. So right. realistically, I was in a good enough mind state that I'm not going to pretend that it was easy. I cried the entire drive home because I knew my marathon was over, but I was trying to, this time I was just trying to focus on the positives. Um, one of them being, I missed the entire month of July running for my knee injury. So there is no good time to break a bone, but if there would ever possibly be a good time to break a bone, it would be two months after a knee injury in, in which not running at all would give the knee an opportunity to come back to a hundred percent. So as opposed to like, you know, letting it happen in, in the winter time when I'm already back to a hundred percent and then I'm sidelined again. So at least this is an opportunity to get down on everything and just try and pretty much start back from scratch and, and rebuild fresh. Um, but I did not pick up a drink. I went, I got the, I got the x-ray right away. They confirmed the, the unfortunate fracture of my fibula and I came home. I told the staying fit ODAC group about it, told them I was depressed. I, you know, reached out to people. I talked to people. Uh, my coach has been there for me, even though we paused the coaching and she's no longer technically getting paid for her advice. She still reaches out to me every few days to make sure that I'm doing okay mentally because she's also in recovery and she cares. Um, and, and we become friends more than just athlete coach. And so, you know, I have people like yourself who make sure that I'm doing okay, doing wellness checks every once in a while. And because of that, because of the, what I didn't have the first time is I didn't have staying fit ODAT. Now I do. Now I have 777, now 778 members hey. um, that I can reach out to that can help me out that I can post and they can be like, get a little bit better. They're not going to tell me, Oh, go try this new beer. 
They're going to say, you know, this too shall pass, you know, one day at a time, mm. stay focused. They hit me with the MIGs. You tell us one day at a time every day. Now you got to focus on one day at a time. You write, you write, you write. I'm going to focus <laughs> on that. I'm going to work on it. Um, and, and that's, that's what they tell me. And that's what I'm doing. That's where I'm grinding. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at right now is just trying to, uh, but I'm, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't upset. I'd be lying if I said depression didn't come through, but I'd be lying as well. If I said that, uh, I wanted to pick up a drink. I, uh, had I thought about it. Yeah. Cause I think that thought will always be there, but the desire wasn't there. And this time it takes me seconds um, to realize when that drink, when that thought comes in my mind, you know, oh, well, you're laid up now. Just have a beer. It only takes me seconds to realize what's going to get better. What is going to get better? I'm still going to be depressed. Um, but now to add on to, I'm still going to have a broken ankle, but now to add on to those two problems, I'm now going to disappoint my wife. I'm going to disappoint my son. I'm going to be letting down other people and I'm still going to have to deal with all of those issues. I'm going to be getting more out of shape because I'm going to be adding on those, all that unnecessarily alcohol. So it's like, I try and remind myself, Migs, maybe, and I, 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 I'll have this conversation with myself every so often. If you can think of one thing that'll get better if you pick up a drink, then we can talk about it. Then, then we can negotiate. And I'm still yet to come up with that one thing that'll get better if I pick up a drink. So I never even bring the conversation up to anybody because I always told myself, think of one thing and then you can sit down with Mallory and you can be like, hey, maybe I can be a responsible adult and go have a drink. Um, but until I think of that one thing that could potentially get better, then uh, I don't see a reason to have that conversation with, with Mallory because nothing is going to get better. Absolutely nothing is going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And this time it's going to get way worse. And I'm very aware of that. And I know that I'll lose everything that I've worked so fucking hard for in the last 41 months. I will lose everything. And I'm not prepared to give it up. I just really wanted to highlight the difference between, you know, you have come such a long way and the difference between continuous sobriety, right? And creating a community and creating your own people and uh, having these touchstones and building a life that you're proud of. Like, you know, the continuous sobriety is a thing that I think made you respond differently, you know, to this particular. I mean, like you have all these parallels in your life. Like, I love the parallel. Like dad gets in a car accident. Nothing changes. You get in a car accident. Things change. You know, I mean, like these like parallels. Not for a few you months, know, but it, it did. No, no, no. Change. But just, yeah, you know, like I like the storytelling of it all. Right. And then in this in this particular case, like you were even sober, you know, that the first rolling of your ankle, you had just taken all this stuff on. It felt so hot and so urgent, but that continuous sobriety, this, this kind of like, there's never, ever going to be a reason to pick up a drink or a drug. Nothing's ever going to get made better by it. I've created all this. I, my life is too big. It's, it's too important. It's too special to me to throw it away for these things. And you said, you know, if I think of something, I'll let y'all know but I just haven't thought of something yet. And I think that just wants that, that brings me to the very end of our conversations, right? We're, you know, at the end of the day, we're doing experience, strength and hope. I want to know what your hopes are, you know, for staying fit ODAT, you know, and I know that we got hopes and dreams for Boston coming at you. Um, but, and also, you know, for this podcast, what are some hopes and dreams that we should look forward to as listeners and, and who should we be listening for in the future? And, uh, you know, where do you think you want to take this? So we can sort of start to chart that and help you daydream about your future. 
as as far as the the group itself, um, my goal is to just keep providing a safe space and a community for people all over the world who are focusing on recovery, um, whether it be alcohol, drugs, mental health issues, overeating, whatever you define as recovery. Because the same way I can't call someone else an alcoholic, I can't tell someone else that they're not in recovery. So whatever right. you define as recovery, if you feel you're in recovery from something, anything, and you want to focus on a life of health and fitness, you know, the, the, the big book of AA tells me the only requirement is the desire to stop drinking. And the only requirement for staying fit ODET is uh, the desire to, to focus on health and fitness as a better way of life along with whatever. I mean, we have people in there who aren't even necessarily done drinking or done drugging, mm, yet, yeah. but they have the desire. It's, you don't yeah. have to have this many days sober. You have to just have the desire and you have to want to surround it around something that will make you, you know, it's, it's like, it's a total swing. You take away the, the bad stuff and then you add in good stuff. And it's like, you're adding in way more time to your life. So that's, I just want to continue providing that place for the group, seeing it grow, maybe hit a few more countries. I think that would be cool. Um, I would like to eventually maybe put together some type of like live events where people can meet each other, <gasps> have some fun, mingle. Uh, that's that's like a, a goal of mine eventually for hopefully for 2022. Uh, for the podcast, I just want to continue staying on track. Uh, um, uh, episode every Sunday and just keep interviewing awesome people who want to share their story, who don't want to be anonymous about it, who just want to shout it from the mountaintops on what they're working on, what they're accomplishing. As far as uh, episodes to listen out for, uh, I love every single episode that I do. I think it's a really awesome moment that I get to share with someone uh, a couple hours at a time to really highlight someone's recovery and their story. And it's it's just, it's a couple hours that also keep me sober for the day. Uh, but specifically ones that I would, I guess you can call personal to me that are coming out very shortly after you've already heard this are going to be uh, my best childhood friend growing up who is like a brother to me. I call his mom, mom, his dad, dad. Um, they've always been there for me through everything and I love them to death. And he fell into addiction and then went to jail for six years and just came home in uh, mm. August and so I interviewed him. His name is Greg. He'll he's uh, that interview is already done. It'll be releasing shortly. Uh, <sighs> it, it might even be the next episode after this one, but don't hold me to that. And then uh, my big brother in the recovery community that I met as soon as I started staying fit. Odat, uh, Joseph Pop Buchanan. I interviewed him. Hey. It ended up being the longest interview I've ever done. It's over three hours long. It's crazy good. We talk about everything, everything. And he <sighs> said it was the first time he ever got to share his story from like every single detail of his entire life is condensed into this three hour episode. And he said it was the most detail he ever got to go into in one interview. So he's really good at sharing his story in like a minute and a half, you know, because he's yeah. always like, you know, yeah. so that's probably that's gonna be so special. Uh, to it like really, really, it really was. It. Um, but like I said, every episode is just special to me. And so there's, there's a lot of great ones coming out. The queue is packed right now, um, in a good way, as far as, you know, interviews that I got lined up. Uh, I have, if anybody listens to recovery elevator, uh, I mm. have, I already, I already interviewed and released Paul Churchill, but next I, him. um, I actually have one set up for Monday or Tuesday with Odette Kressler, who started doing, um, his interviews as well. 
on yes. the podcast. I have one lined up with her. I have one. I'm working on getting the host of I Run Anonymous. Um, mm. He just goes by Ira on there. Uh, I don't want to say his name because I don't think he says, although he's very open with his name um, on social media in the real world. I don't think, I don't know if he's ever said his name in the podcast world. So I'll show him the respect of not doing that either. Uh, so I have them uh, lined up uh, as well as a few other ones, but you know, we're, we're getting, we're keeping it going. And there's, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great stuff in the queue and a lot more lined up. And, you know, my goal is to just keep providing experience, strength, and hope for everybody out there. And for everybody to just most importantly, know that they're not alone. If you have to be quiet about your recovery and your sobriety, this is a place where you can be around people who don't, I know I won't be, I'm anonymous with other people's sobriety, but I'm not with mine. And, you know, I just want to keep this going. And, and that's that. Well, I will, I'll, you know, I'll take us out, you know, cause, uh, you know, I guess we have to stop speaking at some point. I just want to real quick, let everybody know I'm training for an Ironman right now. So I need these episodes so I can have somebody talking in my ears. I'm putting in the miles and all that bike time. Y'all follow my journey at Mackers NYC on Instagram. This is what? the first time. This is actually the first time I'm going to jump in as like my previous hosting <laughs> duties. Uh, when is your Ironman? I got two. I got one in April and one in June. So I'll. I'll oh, do so what you're saying is I smell a May interview of Katie Mack returns <laughs> to talk about how how April went and how the June goal is. Uh, yeah, I love I'm, that. I'm, I'm, that I feel up. like I feel like we're close <laughs> enough that I'm committing you. Um, yeah, we're yeah. So that's done. Listeners, all right, all right, all right, all right. Listen, listen in May. Listen to May because we'll be talking about how April went and how and what her plans are for June already. So, uh, yeah, we can put that. I'm in blushing. We can put that in the books of the list of other interviews you can keep an eye out for. I also just want to get I want to encourage the community to if you heard something today, you know, I, even out of the blue, you can just put it in that staying fit ODAC group to something that resonated with you. This is a big community thing, you know. Mix does a lot of work for us and, and, and connects us. So if something resonates with you, let us know. Let us know how this interview went. If you know somebody who wants to be interviewed, let us know. I mean, this is, you know, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. So, um, you know, keep keep uh, checking in with us and we'll be checking in with you. And uh, Migs wanted to also highlight at one point um, that we've had, you know, or we've had, he's had 53 guests and no relapses, you know, yes, so keep plugging yourself. I did forget to bring that up. Thank you for remembering 53, oh, yeah. 53 interviews. If you're by the time you've listened to this episode, there has already been 53 episodes released. Uh, technically, I guess 52, if you count the first one as my story, but I haven't relapsed. So <laughs> 53 people have been on here, whether it has been from substances, alcohol, um, drugs, whether it was people dealing with um, uh, mental health issues, or we've had people that have just done experience, uh, extended, uh, prison sentences. Nobody has picked up a drink. Nobody has picked up a drug. Nobody has, uh, I hate to say it so dark, but let's just be blunt. Nobody that's been on here has committed suicide and, mm, no, that's um, not to have, yeah. and nobody has, uh, reoffended and went back to prison. So zero relapses on the staying fit Oda interviews. We are 53 for 53 and we want to keep fucking going strong. I love each and oh man, I'm getting emotional thinking about this. I love <laughs> each and every one of you that have taken the time. I love each and every one of you that are going forward. And I can't wait to do another one of these. I think I'm going to sign you up to be the, uh, the, the guest host. Anytime I need to talk, 
And maybe we'll come back in uh, 45 or 47 episodes and we'll do this for episode 100. I am. I'm on board. You know, I'm on board. This is like my happy place. So maybe we got to set something up and I'll come to New York and we'll do that one live. <gasps> OK, well, uh, I, 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 I'm too excited. I mean, I need you here. I mean, whatever. If we're in the same space, it's just going to get very extra. But we'll just have to put it live so they can see how excited and how often we both like cry. Like, it's just like, just like <laughs> one single beautiful tear and then oh, we laugh man. it off. So let's wrap oh, this up. Start, OK, this is staying fit out at. This is how we're staying healthy and this is how we're doing it. How are we doing it, Migs? One day at a time. I love you all. Thank you so much for letting me guest host. Y'all, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and evening. We love you. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit Odette. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T. You can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.